Hello, fellow homebrewers. JP here, and I want to introduce to you the brand new Brew Built X1 Conical Series available at More Beer. More Beer sells the highest standard in homebrewing equipment, and the Brew Built Conicals are just that. They're made from mere polished 304 stainless steel, and they come with loads of features that you and I have been looking for. They have a full two inch bottom dump valve, which will eliminate your clogging issues, while the sturdy base includes four reinforced legs, just like those big pro tanks do. More Beer also carries the Brew Built line of options and add ons like casters, pressure kits, and even external glycol chillers. So you can find out more about the new Brew Built X1 Conical Uni Tanks by going over to morebeer.com for detailed videos on the entire line of Brew Built Conicals. You can trust Brew Built with your next fermentation, and you can trust More Beer to find the right conical for you. Brew Built at morebeer.com. Craft brewers, beer lovers, beer drinkers. Get ready for an all-new experience in information exchange and beer culture. Your only source source. for live beer radio that brings expert brewers from around the globe right to your home. You're not just listening to broadcasters. It's the Brewcasters on the Brewing Network. Welcome back once again to the Brewing Network. Yes, welcome. Another great Sunday show in a hot and sweaty studio. <laughs> I heard today that it's not just us that has the heat wave. Like, the whole country is hot as heck right now. The whole country? Something like that. That's what I heard. Yeah. It's pretty much. I mean, there might be an exception or two, but everybody's really damn hot. Okay. So we don't have any right to complain today. But it's not too humid around here. Yeah. I we... was talking to my brother. Both brothers in Southern Cal, they said it's so humid and nasty and yeah. hot, 100 degrees, too. Uh... Yeah. See, humidity right now would be horrible. Yeah, true. Yeah. But we got it all right. The studio's feeling pretty good today, and we have beer this week, which is good, because last week, uh, unbeknownst to the listeners at home, we had a beer crisis like five minutes before the show. Yeah, I showed up and, and uh, no beer. <laughs> I was aghast. Uh, I don't know, John, whose fault was that? <laughs> yeah, you looked at John and said, did you call Dr. Scott? Yeah. <laughs> no. It's like, no, but I was at the ALL, so. <laughs> Yo, you had beer. <laughs> I had beer. John took care of uh, self. I took care of myself. <laughs> so I took Precautions, I stopped. Yeah, that a boy. I, I knew you would, Doctor Scott. I didn't bother calling because I knew you'd know. He would come through. Yeah, uh, we got some extras too. Some left from last week, and there's plenty of beer this week, so we could get good and schnockered by the end of the show. Who knows? Yeah. That would be weird, right? Well, it's hot enough in here, so <laughs> sweat it right now. Stay hydrated. All right, so uh, we'll do a quick recap of last week and get into this week because uh, we got to get a lot of things done in a, in a little bit of a shorter time because we're going to play a lecture for you guys at the end of the show today. Although if it goes two hours, we don't really care. But uh, just so it, it, for you, for those of you on the East Coast, if you want to hear the good lecture we got coming at the end, we'll try to cut it a little short so we can get that playing. Uh, last week, uh, we did not have a guest, but we did... Uh, a very nice lecture on, on work chilling, uh, which covered all the bases about how to chill and all the techniques to do it and why you need to do it. And we actually had our first caller argument, which was kind of cool, right? <laughs> yeah, that was exciting. <laughs> I like that. It was the first time we got a caller to call in and, and uh, say, hey, uh, I think you guys are wrong and, and I'm right. Yeah. And I like that. That was cool. It's so, pretty easy to get flustered. Yeah. Like, oh, 
<laughs> yeah. Or, or get a big, big, big argument. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, we're just going to handle those as they come. We like them. I think that's cool. John was a bit like a deer in the headlights for a second. He's like, like, oh. Like, what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but it was cool. And, and the guy ended up totally cool at the end, too. Yeah. Just remember, um, we can always cut you off. That's right. <laughs> we have the hang up button. <laughs> but he was awesome. And in the end, he said he was going to send us more beer. So that's cool. Hey, um, call in, argue, yeah. and send beer, <laughs> and then send beer. Yeah. So, so that was fun, and the work discussion was good. If you have any other uh, questions about that, as usual, that are, are held over from last week, we'll be happy to put it in the discussion this week. Chilling. Uh, if you're just tuning in, and if it's your first time listening, you can go to the chat room to hang out with us and be able to ask questions. Our chat room moderator Daniela is there, uh, taking care of it for us today. Daniela, you want to say hi to the chat room kids? Hi to everybody and the chat room kids. We are lucky you got off work just in time to get here today. Oh, yeah, and traffic was really bad. She was angry when she got here. <laughs> yeah. You know, she came in cursing Americans. She, yeah. like, walks in the door, I hate Americans. <laughs> yeah, because I did my regular thing that I do on the Autobahn. Like, I, I'm on the left lane, of course, because I drive a fast car. Yeah. And then I blink with the lights and everything. But nobody would, you know, screw over us. <laughs> so, so that's just stupid. That is a problem that we have here. Is It's true that our left lane is considered the fast lane. If you're, if you're faster moving traffic that's where you're supposed to travel and you're supposed to move over to the right if you're not but but a lot of people just don't know that in america yeah. and that's why we can't have an autobahn here because people don't know how to move over when there's a fast moving really? vehicle coming Seriously. up behind you they instead feel that it's like time for them to stand their ground and prove a point like no it's my lane <laughs> and i don't care that i'm going slower i think they don't even notice you actually yeah probably oh. i'm surprised you weren't at least swearing in two languages <laughs> well that's what i did in a car <laughs> actually she's funny because she uh speaks german but she curses in french and no, it's, and Italian. Italian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's always fun to hear. Well, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah, that's cool. You made it on time. Mm-hmm. All right, so to go to the chat room, there's a there's a big giant chat now button on the on our homepage. Uh, don't bother registering. Uh, the chat room's still a little sh- like shady in in that respect. Yeah, be a guest. Yeah, go log in as a guest and just put in a nickname and put two numbers after the name. Like if your name is Roger, put Roger O three doesn't matter what it is, and that'll get you right in if you have any trouble. So come join us there. Lots of listeners like to hang out and give us questions, talk to Daniela, and uh, converse with each other. So it's a good place to go and do that. Uh, and if you haven't registered for our forum yet, uh, go there too, and there, lots of good information happening there. I got a funny bit I'm going to do in a little bit off of our forum because uh, some of those guys on there are awesome. They're always posting funny things. I just read this week that... Um, the post, it's a link to another blog site that has the, the prison, the prison house beer or, or wine made. Have you guys seen that? You know, where you're supposed to make it in a toilet or yeah, a garbage bag. Yeah, with uh, only the stuff you can find there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, he, this is a guy who went through the whole experiment. If you can't find yeast, yeah. you use, uh, moldy bread. Not, not hard, so it still should be soft, but moldy, and you put it in a sock. And you throw that in with like some fruit juice and whatever kind of sugar you can find. Yeah. And leave it for a week, and it's it's wine in the end. Whoa. Yeah, this guy was really funny. Uh, the link's on the website. I think it's in, like, off-topic stuff or general <laughs> beer-related, something Spitting like that. It. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, just spit it. Well, he ended up with, if you read the thing, and the guy's a funny guy, too. He, he just has funny things to say as he's doing it. Uh, he ended up with, with one of his wines was 14% alcohol, and the other Ooh. one, I think, was 12. And he just threw in, like, a powdered drink mix and some, like, jelly, like, gummy bears. For his sugar <laughs> use. 
<laughs> yeah, and then put the bread in a dirty sock and threw it in there, left it in his bathroom for a week. What? Why? <laughs> I just, I don't you know why. <laughs> Actually, it's a good question, but it's cool. How do you, so, t- how do you we test should try alcohol that percent when you're in prison? Yeah, that I, that I don't know, but he just he said out of curious he was just curious, so he went to a local brew shop to find. A, I I assume since he couldn't really do an OG, he probably found like a refractometer or something, right? You can tell alcohol with that. I'm sure every prison has those. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So anyway, that's some funny stuff, and I'm gonna do a bit in just a few minutes. Um, cool. Out of that. Okay, so this week we're gonna talk about carbonation with you guys and how to get proper carbonation, different methods of getting it, and how to uh, keep it. How to keep carbonation. Awesome. Um, I, I am assuming that maybe some head retention things are going to fall into that discussion with carbonation. And, um, yeah. And then maybe some beer storage stuff at the end of that, I think, because sure. uh, keeping carbonation and keeping your beer fresh is, is usually a hot topic on the show. So we'll probably finish it up with a beer storage thing after the carbonation. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, uh, we don't have a guest this week, although we have Marin Brewing Company coming in next week, and uh, they brew a lot of beer. That company, so I'm excited about them. This week, instead, we're gonna we're gonna play a lecture from the um, National Homebrew Competition that was in Baltimore. John went there. Uh, those of you who are regulars know all about that, and he made some recordings for us. So this week, bootlegged. it's gonna be uh, yeah, he, he bootlegged it. <laughs> he said it was okay. <laughs> I did. Uh, he recorded it first and asked after. I, I did think. actually. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. I was like, hmm. The guy's name is Phil. Markowski, he's the brewmaster at Southampton uh, Public House, which is in Southampton, New York, and uh, he, he's the author of a book called Farmhouse Ales, um, so you're going to get a lot of good stuff about uh, Belgian ales, and is it Saison, is that how you say it? Saison. Saison ales. Um, it's actually, I listened to um, uh, almost all of it uh, as I was editing it, and it, it's awesome. The guy's got a lot to say. A lot of history in there about it, and and then a lot of techniques about how to get proper fermentation and what temperatures and things like that. So it's really a good discussion if you're into Belgians yeah. and uh, and other kind of strong ales like that too. So. He definitely talks about the yeast too. I was okay. really moody. He he oh, <laughs> yeah. He was moody or the well, yeast the is moody. Moody yeah. The yeast is moody. <laughs> okay. It's got right. a ferment in like at 85 or something like that. All right. Very very warm for an ale. That's perfect for my brewing then. Yeah, you're set. <laughs> I don't have to change Tom a King. thing. <laughs> Just put it in the studio here. Okay. Exactly. All right. So that's about an hour long lecture that will get running for you mm, around the 6:30 hour right there. So. uh you know, if you want to listen to the whole show, it'll go till about 7.30 or 8 o'clock tonight. But you know how it goes. If we get on a roll, we'll be here a while. Yeah. And that's up to you guys, We're on too. our first beer, so. If you have anything to say, any questions to ask, you can call 888-401-BEER. And uh, that works for anybody in the, I don't know, northern uh, North American continents. I think you can call them that 888 number. If you're in Europe Canada. or Australia, I think you got you can't call on that number. What about Canada. Canada can. Yes, yeah. can. Yeah, because we got a call from New Zealand a couple of weeks ago, right? And uh, no, 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 not New no, Zealand, Nova from Scotia, uh, Nova Scotia. There you go. And uh, I think we got another call from Canada yeah, before. So eight 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 four zero one beer. Daniela says that Europe can call too. But if they dial the eight 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 number, it comes through. Yeah. Are you sure about that? I'm positive. Hmm. How do you know? She, she did live there. She, I talk to the INS t- from Germany all the time, and they have a toll-free number, too, and I had to dial them from Germany on. So. Although they could have an international toll-free no, number. You don't know? D- well, they should, but they don't. You don't know that? I do know that. I know everything about the INS. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure you do, actually. You're here, so. <laughs> all right, so there you go. I guess you can still call. 888-401-BEER if you have any questions. 
All right. I got some news for you guys, as usual. Found some interesting topics. Uh, Let's share, please. Yes, I love doing this part of the show because uh, some... Where he some, comes up with this yeah, stuff. Where do you get this? <laughs> How long do you keep this going? I'm curious. This will be good. You know, I'm thinking of... I had a suggestion from somebody. I, I think it was an email... Because um, we're talking about doing other shows in the Brewing Network, which we are developing. Um, I might do a one-hour daily show. I talked about this before. But what I'll do is, is play music. And I think, because I'm really good at finding this weird new stuff, and a lot of it I can find it has to do with beer or mm-hmm. drinking in general. I might do it a daily thing, like from, I don't know, 10 to 11 or something. And uh, just play music and, and read my weird news. Because I like it. It's good Come stuff. home from work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Got to read a lecture. Exactly. Uh, all right. So my first story, uh, true to form of finding good, weird stuff. An off-duty cop allegedly shot a man for knocking over his beer. <laughs> Which to me is, um, you know, good reason to shoot somebody. There's probably a state justice where, was there's served. There's probably a state where that's legal. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, this Texas. was in this was in New York, and it was not legal. Uh, an off-duty police officer officer ended up on the wrong side of the law Friday night, shooting a man who had purposely knocked over the cop's beer in a Lower Manhattan bar. Police said on Saturday. Bernard Marty, who was assigned to Harlem's 25th precinct, was drinking at Cordado's Deli and Bar at 94 and a half Greenwich Street. I wish we had half addresses. Don't you think that's cool? 94 and a half. I don't know why, but that's just kind of cool. It means you got a lot of damn buildings out there is what it means. Uh, it was at 1030 at night Friday. Um, a man knocked over Marty's beer, police sources said. That man voluntary, voluntarily bought Marty a new beer but intentionally then knocked it over again, spilling it all over Marty's clothes, sources said. Marty took out his gun and showed it to the man, who swatted it away. The gun discharged, and one round went into the man's left thigh, police said. It's a likely story, the old, oh, I accidentally shot the guy in the leg story. Why would you even show the gun at that point? Because he spilled his beer, John. Come on. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Take it up a notch. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, After that, Marty uh, hurried out of the bar and into his car and was followed by people from the bar who saw the shooting and people alerted nearby officers... And they pulled Marty over. Police. He was charged with assault and criminal possession of a weapon and was immediately suspended without pay. So Good. there you go. I don't know. I might shoot somebody if they intentionally knocked over well, my beer. Well, no, it was twice. Let's talk it was twice, twice, exactly. I mean, and and I think he was asking for it where he, he got all sort of nice and, and he bought him a new one and then knocked that over on him. Come right. on. You know? Brand new yeah. slacks. He was asking for sure. it. Yeah. <laughs> so... That's my best. Yeah, one for slack the day. jaws like that deserve to suck the pipe. <laughs> and it's a come on, it's a flesh wound. He got it's, shot in the leg. Hey, baby, yeah. he's not, <laughs> suck it up. He's not dead. Hey, put on a crutch, you'll be he's fine. Suck yeah. it up. <laughs> New York pansy. <laughs> Probably a tourist. A real New Yorker wouldn't have said anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he would have taken. He would have dug it out with a <laughs> screwdriver and <laughs> dirty screwdriver and said, "My bad." My bad. <laughs> <laughs> he would have no. He would have dug it out, then bought him another beer, and yeah. then spilled it again. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Have you guys noticed that there's never any nutritional information on alcohol labels? But uh, it's pretty much a requirement now in most states. I don't think it's a federal law, hmm. uh, although it may be, um, that you have to put nutrition information on consumer food goods. Right. Uh, but actually, liquor companies, including beer and wine, are prohibited from putting their nutrition information on the bottle. It's actually a law that says they can't do Why it. Why is that? I wonder. I'm not really sure. Um, I think mostly it's because they're not considered a nutritional 
not food food item. Talk to the and monks so they about don't, that one. Yeah, really. It, and you're right. You're absolutely right. And 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 talk to anybody. You know, we've talked about their nutritional value quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but but the the Food and Drug Administration says that it, it's not a nutritional item, and and therefore it would be misleading to put nutrition information on the package. Um, but this particular it's not story, nutrition. That's not what you're here for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> drinking to get healthy. This article says uh, the alcohol industry is the most regulated consumer product on the food and beverage market. And while all products for consumer consumption are required to have nutrition labeling, the alcohol industry is actually prohibited from putting the information on its product. Now the world's largest alcohol manufacturer, which is, I guess it's pronounced Diageo, has petitioned the government to allow them to put nutrition labels on bottles so that drinkers can know the calories, carbs, and alcohol content and servings per container. It's not the first time a petition has been filed with the agencies that regulate the alcohol industry, but for the first time, public comment is being sought about whether or not uh, the public thinks there should be nutrition information. So servings on per container or containers per serving? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. You're going to have to go and uh, put in your public opinion. Dr. Scott with uh, a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One consumer group, the Center for Science and Public Interest, says because alcohol is a drug and alcoholic beverages are not a source of nutrition, they should be labeled effectively but differently from food. Beer and wine industry officials have expressed concern that one label will not fit all and say different types of alcohol should be treated differently, which is true. You know, beer is a different alcohol than vodka, obviously. That's true. What about wine, too? I mean, it's different. And they have different nutritional information. But, you know, still one label could, could kind of accommodate. You know, all different foods have, you know, obviously foods have different nutritional information, yeah. different contents, and one label's doing it for them. Um, let's see. Diageo says consumers should be given more credit than that, and it's, it's willing to give labels a shot. So public comment is open until September. You can visit the Diageo-sponsored website to, f- to file a comment with the government, either for or against allowing labels. And you can do that at www.knowyourdrink.com. So if you want, if you have an opinion, you want to see nutrition values on your alcohol, it's uh, knowyourdrink.com. Like you can go ahead and cast a vote either way, I guess. Water. Hey, how do you get vitamin your, B? How do you get your nutrition? <laughs> yeah, you consume a lot of beer, Jay. I mean, yeah, that's my nutrition. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> I pretty much I'm on like a beer and cheese diet. I eat a ton of cheese and drink that's a lot good. of beer. Although since our German friends have gone back to Germany, I've really cut down my consumption. Oh yeah, of cheese. Uh, uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, whereas I was buying like two kegs a week when they were here, I haven't yeah. bought a keg in three weeks. Nice. Um, I've I've only bought a couple six packs. Although we've had some leftovers. Drake's had some beer left over here. We haven't seen but, a keg uh, around here. Yeah, but three not been a keg. I, I was going <laughs> to actually brewing. go buy one today, but I didn't have a car, so no, I'm going to do it tomorrow. No. Yeah. Dr. Scott brought beer. Yeah, but see, you got I got the kegerator. It's lonely. It yeah. needs a beer in it. You it's know. so easy when you just get that <laughs> yeah. tap handle. Yeah, exactly. I have a keg for you soon in a week. I'll get you that, oh, ca- yeah? that Cal Common that I made. I'll get a, okay. get a keg for you. Awesome. Well, there we go. Maybe I, maybe cool. I can wait till then. We'll see. If not, I'll finish the one I buy. We'll by put then. on the side. I'm sure I get through it. <laughs> yeah. True. But I did cut down my consumption. But just something about just hanging out with Germans that makes you drink. Like, for example, I wasn't really drinking the other day, and then I got on the phone with, with <laughs> Flo. You know, yeah. you guys know Flo, yeah. and, and he was on the show, some of you listeners know. I was talking to him on the phone, and just talking to him made me drink. <laughs> I ended up having, like, three beers right then. Daniela says six. Brings out okay. the best in you. All right, whatever. All right, I got another story for you guys. You know, if there's any name that that is a buzz name in craft brewing right now, it's Dogfish Head. 
I don't know if you guys have noticed, yeah. but I am hearing this name all over the place. Yeah, they're just booming right now. They are. And and the guy, uh, you know, I don't know if he's just a well-sought-after, knowledgeable guy. You met the guy, didn't you, John, in Baltimore? That's cool. Okay. I, mean, I don't know if it's just that he has a reputation for being like a go-to guy with, with certain knowledge. But uh, if not, then he's just really good at marketing because he's in a, a lot of the man. things that I read, his name comes up and a lot of people call him to get an interview and, and things like that. Mm. And, and anyway, this story is no exception. Um, a brewer cre- recreates a 9,000-year-old beer uh, is, is the headline. A U.S. brewer has recreated uh, what was the first beer brewed in China 9,000 years ago. Sam Calagione, is that how he says it? Yep. Calagione of the Dogfish Head Brewery in Riaboth Beach, Delaware, used rice, honey, and grape and hawthorn fruits. He got the recipe from archaeologists who derived it from the residues of pottery jars found in the late Stone Age village of Jiahu. The residues are the earliest direct evidence of brewed beverages in ancient China, reports National Geographic. Um, They're quoted as saying, We can't prove that an alcoholic beverage was definitely produced in the jars. The alcohol's gone, obviously, but it's not that difficult to infer, said Patrick McGovern, an archaeochemist at the University of Pennsylvania. McGovern, an expert in the origins and history of alcoholic beverages, performed the chemical analysis on on the pottery. He had also found a 2,700-year-old alcoholic beverage in a royal tomb in Turkey, and he had uh, the dogfish head Caligione brew that also. That one's called Midas Touch Golden Elixir. That, that one I've heard of. You've, ha- you've heard of that? Okay. Yeah. That was also based on uh, a 2,700-year-old wow. recipe that they recreated. So uh, McGovern again turned to dogfish head to, to brew up the ancient concoction from China, which will be sold as Chateau Jiahu. He says it will, it's uh, gold in color with a white head similar to champagne bubbles and with a very intriguing taste and aroma, which is not too descriptive, but... Uh, Creative you know, guy. Yeah. I think that's cool, you yeah. know, just to infer the ingredients from a from an old piece of pottery. Why not? And then try to make a beer out of it. That kind yeah. of sounds like Schumann, golden with a white head. <laughs> <laughs> champagne <true>. bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> so... There you go. Dogfish head back in the news again. He's doing a lot right now. A lot yeah. of new things in the industry, it seems like. I think so. And maybe that's why people are talking about Well, that's what everybody wants to hear about yeah, lately. The new stuff. Vinny, this guy. Yeah. Uh, anybody that's, you know, the cutting edge, kind of uh-huh. new, cool stuff. Yeah. I think you're right. And that's what people are into. So, there you go. So, we're about those pro brewers. Is they, like, help each other grow, too. Yeah. It's like a community of home brewing, but on a professional level. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Um, Anheuser-Busch has won its latest battle over the Budweiser name war with Czech beer maker Budvar. And that war's been going on since 1906. Um, now, I know of Budvar, uh, but I didn't know that it, that it was actually in a battle with Budweiser. I actually they assumed that, yeah. that they were affiliated, which yeah. is probably why there's a lawsuit going on, because a lot of people assume that they're affiliated. Yeah. And Budvar uses uh, trademark names like Bud and even Budweiser on some of their labels. So... Um, this time, a Hungarian court has ruled in favor of the St. Louis-based brewer, ordering cancellation for Czech beer maker Budajaviki Budvar's use of the Bud, Budweiser, and Budvar, and Budweiser Beer Budvar labels in Hungary. The court concluded that the term Bud was not a reference to the city, which is called, uh, as close as I can get it, Chesky Budajovis where Budajaviki Budvar is based. Anheuser-Busch said Friday, and therefore that the Czech Brewer could not claim it as a so-called appellation of origin. Such a claim would have entitled the company to use the name. So they could have kept using Bud if right. they if people referred to their city as Bud, you know, because it's a because the city is Budajov. 
but a Jovis. But they don't refer to it as that. So this Hungarian court said, no, in our providence, you have to stop using Bud. The two breweries have been battle, battling over Budweiser and other trade names since 1906 and are still involved in about 40 lawsuits worldwide. Wow. Anheuser-Busch claims it was using the Budweiser name since 1876, 19 years before Budajaviki Budvar came into existence. So, But a lot of the trademark wars in, in all of Europe, uh, Budvar has actually won and been able yeah. to keep using the name. So it's he, significant because Budweiser actually won this one in Hungary. Wow. I heard he had won... Uh, the Budweiser had put a lot of money into it. To the uh, losses? That's like two years ago I was reading the story, too, and it's still going on. Yeah. Put a lot of money into Budvar or just no, into the No, 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 into the lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, Augie Bush has a lot of... Lot of yeah. Friends. A lot of friends, <laughs> a lot of money. Right. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Number one now, beer what you can in get the world. Budweiser yeah. Budvar is just called Czechvar now. Yeah. And actually, I almost bought it today, but I grabbed for the... Yeah. The polliners are very yep. good. Now, Budweiser, uh, just to end it, was uh, quoted as saying, it's another significant court decision for Anheuser-Busch and reinforces our commitment to protect our famous trademarks throughout the world. Hey, good for you, Budweiser. Good. <laughs> <laughs> protect your trademark. That's important. Yeah, turf. They pretty much own the beer world anyways. They do. They're the number one, they're, they're the number one beer company in the world. Yeah. Uh, Bud Light is the, the top beer hands down by far best selling light beer in the world and Budweiser is the best selling um quote unquote full beer <laughs> in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Try to get them in here. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'd be interested in doing it, you know. I mean, I'm not gonna have a sissy President, lecture with right? them and but no, uh, uh, no, uh Fairfield. Like Fairfield, them. right. There's yeah. one in Fairfield, that's yeah, right. Yeah, it's not very far. No. We could ask them in. I, don't, I, don't I gotta, left a message I, with them, actually. Did you really? Yeah. It's just it's about coming the show in. over there. I got to be up front with them, though, before they come in. You know what I mean? Because I'm not going to sit here and pretend that we all drink Budweiser and even like Budweiser. Yeah. I'm going to have to tell them beforehand that it's a homebrew show. It's a craft brew show. And what we want to ask you, I guess, is about, you know, your process and definitely your beer. But we make fun of you all the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I got to be honest. I right? come How do we on know that, it, that he doesn't even yeah, drink Budweiser? You, you could be absolutely right. Yeah. If you're a brewer, you probably know good beer. Yeah. How I, could I, you be, like, let's say their brewmaster in Fairfield has been brewing for, you know, 20, yeah. 30 years. Let's just say for a second that he has. Yeah. you got to assume that he's not really just drinking Bud anymore. No. And he's probably even rarely God drinking hope Bud. not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, though. Although, I bet because it's so corporate, he wouldn't really be allowed to say, I don't drink Bud. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, imagine if that sort of, if, if we got that word out. <laughs> what if we crush the Budweiser empire by having like Mr. <laughs> Bud in here come in saying, yeah, I don't even like my beer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even touch this stuff. I just, I just crunch some numbers and push yeah. some buttons. Uh, we'd be the cure. Ah, that'd be awesome. All right. <laughs> the empire tumbles. <laughs> Hey, you guys want to hear some funny stuff real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. No, no. no. <laughs> I hate funny stuff. No funny stuff. This was posted in our forum, uh, and I got an email about it again. The guy said he might want to check this out. He told me to read them at the end of the show after we've, after we're half cocked, but, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna do it now anyway. They're funny either way. Um, due to increasing products liability and litigation, American beer brewers have accepted the FDA suggestion that the following warning labels be placed immediately on all beer containers. Okay? First warning. The consumption of alcohol may leave you wondering what the hell happened to your bra. Second warning. The consumption of alcohol may make you think you are whispering when you're actually not. Warning number three. 
The consumption of alcohol is a major factor in dancing like a retard. <laughs> and uh, I've seen that in John personally. Thanks. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Okay. Warning number four. The consumption of alcohol may cause you to tell your friends over and over and over again that you love them. And uh, I can vouch for that. I love personally, you. Personally, by the way. <laughs> uh, warning number I, five. I haven't had enough beer yet. <laughs> the consumption of alcohol may cause you to think you can sing. I'm a victim of that. What's well. love got to do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the consumption of alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, we've all been there. You've all yeah, done yeah, the drunk yeah, dial. Uh, yes. <laughs> drink, drinking and dialing. Yeah. Uh, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you have mystical kung fu powers. <laughs> <laughs> resulting in you getting your ass kicked. Doc- <laughs> Dr. Scott's a little tipsy. <laughs> yeah, he breaks out his karate. His yeah, he does. Uh, the consumption <laughs> of alcohol. You me off. <laughs> yeah, that's not alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> the consumption of alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with other members of the opposite sex without spitting. <laughs> I, I can't actually. The consumption of alcohol may cause you to roll over in the morning and see something really, really scary. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that I don't think I have that, but yeah. I wish I had. Yeah. The consumption of alcohol is the leading cause of inexplicable rug burns on the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. The consumption of alcohol may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling Daniela has suffered from that. She's laughing quite a bit. <laughs> I think she's laughing at you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. It's a reflection of you. The consumption of alcohol may lead you to believe you are invisible. <laughs> hey, check this out, guys. Go ahead. No, okay. Yeah. Uh, and la- oh no, that's not the last one yet. The consumption of alcohol may lead you to think that people are laughing with you. <laughs> and finally, the consumption of alcohol may cause a disturbance in the time-space continuum, whereby gaps of time may seem to literally disappear. <laughs> Which happens to be like three times a week. Okay. <laughs> the old blackout. Yeah. You know, they Real say if you've ever blacked out from alcohol, you're an alcoholic. Okay. Yep. That's, uh, I, that's still, I still don't believe there was a cat. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, the, my words in the morning was, there was a cat. Yeah, yeah. It's the biggest telltale sign, they say. If you've ever, if you can ever remember a time where you didn't remember parts of the night before, you're an alcoholic. But I, I don't hmm. remember any of that. <laughs> yeah. If you can't remember them. Remember There's tons of, of classifications of alcoholism, actually. Pretty much everybody's an alcoholic, if you listen to it. If you go to an AA meeting, everybody's an alcoholic. If you oh, never yeah. drink, except when you go out to social situations, but then you drink because everybody else drinker. is drinking <laughs> socially, even if it's just a couple cocktails, they say that that's a form of alcoholism because you're doing it because everyone around you is doing well, it. screw them. Which is alcoholism. No, because yeah. you're a binge drinker. Yeah. One beer. Right. For you, it's a binge. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I had a friend call me a couple weeks ago because he was concerned about his drinking and he had started to think about it. And he called you? He called me because he's like, you know, if anybody knows about alcohol, it's going to be you. So I'm curious. You know, I drink such and such amount of beer, uh, you know, a week. And, uh, you know, you got to drink at least that or, you know, most likely more. So do you consider yourself an alcoholic? And then, therefore, am I an alcoholic was his question. And I told him that, yes, by the standards of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, he is an alcoholic because he has at least a beer a day and usually like three or four. And uh, AA would say that you're an alcoholic if you do that. 
Yeah. I feel guilty now. Yeah. I just say it makes you a happier and healthier person. <laughs> That's my, <laughs> you, have new my sto- you have the news stories to back that up. Too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I am on a crusade each week to prove that. <laughs> and I will keep on my crusade. Thank you. Thank okay. You. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to get to a silly little thing we're going to do for just about five minutes. And then, what do I got in there? Then I think we're going we're gonna to do a tasting. I got some Belgian beers in here this week. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, I was hanging out with Drake's on uh, Friday night. I went to play poker Perfect. at Drake's Brewery. And this guy, he showed me and Daniela all around the brewery. And uh, he has two huge walk-in refrigerators, mm-hmm. as you would expect. As but should. one of them has a shelf that goes all the way around this, this like, I don't know, 25-yard wall, this huge wall. Okay. And the top shelf is all filled with beers from around the world. He, I, apparently, he's been in the Beer of the Month Club for years. Wow. You'd think he would have drank some and, of them. Uh, Well, I, I guess he can't drink enough. I don't know. Because when I was leaving, he's like, take some beer. And I said, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I came home with a six-pack of beer, and a few of them are Belgians. And since awesome. uh, our, dis- our lecture later on in the show today is going to be about farmhouse sales, let's do a tasting. We're going to do one That's here great. in a few minutes, and then we'll do another one at the end of the show just before we get to the lecture. Sound good, everybody? That's great. All awesome. right. Awesome. So we'll be right back. It's the Brewing Network. Thanks for tuning in. The Brewing Network, saving your life one beer at a time. Oi! Oi! Thank you, John. Oi! 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 You sounded just like him. I didn't know if it was you or the recording. <laughs> John's been drinking all day. Yeah, I have. <laughs> All right. I was out on the water, man. I had to. It was hot. Yeah, you were out the Delta or I'm something. On the Delta, huh? jumping in the river. Wakeboarding? No, it was too much debris. But really? <laughs> yeah, the Delta. That's where you get your water from, too. I know. We brew with that water. That's pretty scary. Cool. <laughs> we should start brewing lambics then. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't even need to there. throw the old sock in. There. Yeah. yeah. You just dip your carboy in your set. Yeah. Oh, gross. Add some sugar. All that septic tank's running off. Mmm. Yummy. Yummy. All right, we're going to do a uh, quick little thing here and then do our, our tasting of a Belgian before we move on. Here's what I'm interested in. I like to keep records for posterity. You know, like the old put things in a time capsule and bury it for 20 years kind of thing. You're such a thoughtful guy. I just like to do that. I think that people should know how things advance and how they change and, and be able to look back at, at how things once were compared to how they are now, for example. I joined 24-Hour Fitness yesterday. <laughs> so... I'm noticing that since I started homebrewing, um, I've I've had an an unexplained growth in my abdomen area. I don't I don't know what exactly it's for, but I've I've put on a few inches. Uh, My work pants have gone from um, where they were to where they are now. Let's just say that, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is a few sizes bigger than where they were last year. So he's Um, he's afraid of getting chunky here, and he's going to drag the rest of us down. Well, not necessarily because. Because uh, I'm not afraid to embrace my new growth. I'm actually. So you're thinking that I'm coming at this in the sense of uh, I want to measure our bellies and then either keep it in check or reduce that measurement. I'm actually more interested in the growth and <laughs> how many inches I can put on over the next uh, year or so. So I think what we'll do, and I'm not saying that I'm going to intentionally, uh, you know, grow my my beer gut. Please which is, don't. Uh, but is what you know, I'm winter's at. coming up. You yeah. want to store? I got to store up. That's right. And uh, the thing is that's cool to me is that um, we can 
almost entirely attribute mine to beer because I don't eat regularly. So I'm not eating a bunch of – I don't eat fast food. I'm not eating – we've talked about this before. So it's not that I'm eating unhealthy foods that are putting on weight. You're just not eating. I'm just not eating in general. See, it's, I a, eat, it's a balance. I eat twice a day. I eat a full dinner, but it's usually a healthy dinner. Right. Sometimes we'll get into some fatty foods, but that's no big deal once in a while. And I eat like sandwiches for lunch. So I'm not eating fatty foods. So what's cool about my measurement in particular is that whatever growth we experience is going to be solely a Attributed to to beer and lack of exercise. So, <laughs> <laughs> let's say that a little louder. <laughs> lack of exercise. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that uh, I'd have Daniela go ahead and uh, and and measure us all, and then once a month on the show uh, we'll do it. You know, uh, four shows from now. So what's the day? We'll, the twenty fourth. We'll remeasure, so. and you know, you don't have to you don't have to shoot for one way or the other. Just be yourself, and we'll see what happens. And it's for posterity's sake. You know, you get to know a little more about yourself and and how much you've grown. So we're handicapped and no yeah. sucking in, right? Handicap for age. <laughs> yes. Show me the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you definitely get a handicap. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Doctor Scott gets two and a half inches good, for age. Because <laughs> I've got twenty years on you. <laughs> so Daniela is right now measuring John. We we got one of those cloth, you know, those fabric uh, measuring tapes so that we get a proper thing. Now, what's John? John is a thirty-three. A 33. Yeah. Now, for you folks at home who want to play along, I think this will be a great idea. And we can maybe even give a prize for, like, the most or the least. I think we're just going to give a prize for the most growth because that's more fun. Um, you know, after, I don't know, say a couple of months. We'll Six do, months. Yeah. And, hey, we're on the honor system here too, kids. So maybe what we'll do is we'll create a, a topic in the forum, a new topic that's uh, for beer bellies. I've wanted to do that anyway so that people can send in pictures and things like that. And uh, so that's what we'll do. Okay. So, in order to participate, you have to measure the actual belly, which is going to be right around the belly button area, belly right? Button. Are you going just below? Because you're a little low, I think, Danny. Yeah. So, you have to actually cover the belly button. You don't, If you go lower, you're going to miss out on some girth. If you go higher, you're going to miss out on some girth. So, for those of you at home, take your measuring tape and wrap it right around. So, John was at 33 inches. Is that mm-hmm. correct? At belly button height? Yes. You need I'll, to double check. I'll do check. it again. I'm double going to double check. check now. This is important. But I can tell you what Dr. Scott is right now. Go ahead. He's a good 37. Is that mm-hmm. right? Now, there's no half here. It's a it's a strong 37. Strong 37. Wow. It's weird how the belly seems to go in round numbers. I don't know why it does that, but it John does. John is still a 33. John's a 33. All right. Now let's Doc's a 37. It compared to us, he gets a 2-point handicap. <laughs> so, 35, you're not doing too bad, Doc. Okay, I got to stand up here too. I'll be the last one here. And uh Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah check that thing. And th- now, I'm not going to push it. Let me stand and, and properly. Measure his inseam, too. Yeah, no, and no. relax, Jay. Right. Relax. Hey, that's not my belly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it oh, is. I'm sorry. Okay. i got to hold my br- i got to stop talking for a second or it's going to move my belly. Uh, it's always that's, moving. That's it's cute. looking good. Cute. What am I at? You are a 39. What? 39. Measure that again. There's no way I'm a 39. Wow. If I'm a 39, I'm taking Doc's two points back. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. She was wrong. You're 40. Am I really? I'm not a 39. You're so a 39. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <cow>. yeah. <laughs> 39? Yes. Oh, man. I think well. you've had all your growth. <laughs> we should have measured you earlier. Should have. Wow. How's that bike look? Yeah, right? I gotta. Get, <laughs> I didn't expect to feel this way. I thought I'd be like, okay, 30. 
four-ish, and uh, I'd be happy to get up to like a 40 just for fun. Wow. But now that I'm already pretty much <laughs> at 40, that's not much fun. So the game's over. Yeah. Uh, no, game no, over. No. <laughs> it's not over. I'm still interested in seeing. I'm, I'm not going to intentionally grow it, but I'm not going to fight it if it does grow. Yes. I'm going to embrace Don't my growth. Embrace it. And uh, I think that it. I think that in this business, it's a sign of being a, a brewing professional, actually, yes, because yes. you got to try a fair amount of beer to know about beer, right? Yeah. And I'm willing. It shows that I'm willing to, to make that sacrifice. For better good. I'm curious to know right now if anybody wants to call in with their measurement if they happen to be doing it at home. It's all good fun. Don't worry. You know, we don't all have to look like, uh, I don't know, who looks real good? Some dude in a magazine, right? Yeah, that dude. Yeah. They, they don't have they don't a beer in their like hand, though. Daniela actually, good, Daniela. Daniela actually really likes beer bellies, don't you? I think beer bellies look awesome, and I don't like the dudes in the magazines. They're just way too skinny. Uh-huh. Beer bellies, they have something very, I don't know, just very rough to it. Yeah, rough. Yeah, it's like real men need beer bellies. Now, is there a cutoff point from where it becomes... No. You know, there's no... <laughs> what? <laughs> there's no cutoff? Is there a cutoff point with breast? Uh, no. <laughs> she, she makes a good point. <laughs> so are you saying that uh, like 65 inches is, is fine as long as it's all just a beer belly? You know, we in Germany don't measure in inches, so I have no idea what you're talking about. But well, it's, yeah. if I'm a 39... Oh, yeah, you're not big, yeah. So a, it's, almost, it's almost double what I am. That's a meter. <laughs> is, is 65 a meter? No, well, no, maybe no, it depends no, on how tall the man is, it's too. Is it really? I've got a one meter belly. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh! Holy cow! That's great. You look just fine. Okay. That's a hundred centimeters. So if anyone wants to call in, it's eight 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 four zero one beer, and you could tell us your measurement. But it has to be it has to be recent. You had to have done it like along with us, or you can put it in the chat room too. You know, just grab any, and even if you take a string and wrap it around and then put it up against a tape measure. Oh, we could we could fly Danielle out there. To measure. She'll do it. Yeah. Uh, Oh, Danielle, give her, what do you got? Someone I have in Rick now? from Connecticut with a 44. <laughs> that's Smoking. <my> <laughs> yeah. I think that's my dad, actually. Let's get him on the hey. phone. <laughs> dad, uh, call in right now. 888-401-BEER. <laughs> People want to know who the Brewcaster's pop is, and I want to talk to you about your 44-inch belly, too. Yeah. Because you're supposed to be on a diet, so uh, 888-401-BEER. Call. Okay. Uh, don't think of it as a meter around your belly. Think of it as a hundred centimeters. <laughs> That's a lot of centimeters. Center. That is a lot of centimeters, man. <laughs> you can see those I, centimeters just melting. I'm, I'm like a desk right now. I'm like a small study desk. <laughs> uh, You're bigger than a yard of ale. I am. Wow. wow. That must be why I can fit a couple yards of ale in me before I have to pee or anything else. Um, yeah, it's all bladder. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe I just was pushing out or something. What do you think? No? No. no. I, thought, I thought it was sucking in. Yeah, yeah me too. Wasn't. I was trying to get a nice, like, relaxed uh, fit. Wow. 39. 39. Daniela says I'm usually bigger if you can't hear that on the microphone. Wow. Okay. Uh, what I, hour of the day? Just yeah, depends on. Like when I wake up, I'm smaller. But yeah. by mid-evening, you know, <laughs> I'm a lot bigger after a few beers. Um, hey, we had a call. Let sure. me just do this again really quick. We had a call at the break about the chat room again. If you're confused about how to get into the chat room, it's the it's the button on the main page that says chat now. It's a white button. Don't go to the forum. Go to the chat now. Go in as a guest. Don't bother registering. That's at the bottom left of the screen. And then put in a nickname with two digits after it, and you'll be fine. Uh, so there you go, in case you were wondering how to get in there. Phone I think call. I think Pops is calling in right now. Two digits. Is that him? Hey, Rick. All right, hey, no small talk. Just tell him to hang on. 
No. <laughs> Let's get this guy. Chatting her up over there. Are you ready? Oh, it's not. It's not pops or what? Robert. Oh, is it a measurement though? Okay, we'll take it. Hang on. Let me let me figure out how to pick him up here. Okay, go ahead. Ro- hey, Robert. How you doing? I'm Hi. doing good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. I'm uh, I'm drinking a nice home brew right now. It's a uh, London uh, Pride. Nice. Cool. And uh, well, I've got a little thing here. My waist is about a 44, but okay. What y'all were talking about up there at the belly button? Yeah, that's what you got to do. The biggest part. That's what you're about, uh, I'd guess about 50. 50? <laughs> yeah, wow. So, six inches out. Uh, are you going to attribute all that to beer? Yeah, is that beer? Well, mm, I'd say about 98% of it is. <laughs> and then 2% pizza? Mm, McDonald's. Pizza and uh, frog water. I'm a chef. Oh, oh there okay. Go. There you go. You know what? I'm I'm actually glad you gave us the waist measurement because that's a good point of reference as to how far that sticks out, right? Because he's sure. got his belly is six inches past his waist, yeah. right? Yeah. I yeah, my, hangs over. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. All right. Here, what's your name? It's Roger. Uh, Robert. Robert. Okay, I'm writing you down here, Robert. And you're at what you said, fifty, right? Fifty. Mm-hmm. Fifty. Okay. Fifty. I'm gonna 50. keep you. Where are you from, Robert? I'm from, uh, from Charlotte, here? North Carolina. Charlotte, North, North Carolina. I'm writing this all down because when we do our measurement in a month, if you happen to be listening, I want you to call in and give us a new measurement. Yeah. Cool, man. <laughs> we got to document this. That's 50 inches. That's most of North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, w- would you say that you've been <laughs> consistent with your 50 inches, or this is a recent Are you 50 peaked? inches? Uh, Are you about, peaked? Uh, well... I just hit 30 a few years ago, so, well, actually, it wasn't up until about three years ago. Okay. And and did you notice, you know, an, an obvious increase when you started homebrewing? Or when you started chefing? Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. <laughs> good, well, good beer. Yeah, you got your... Actually, it started when I was uh, commercial fishing, when we were just sitting there waiting for the fish to come in. You didn't have anything else to do but drink beer all day. <laughs> As a commercial fisherman, so you were getting paid to do it. Yes, that's exactly. A, that's awesome. Drink all day. <laughs> 11 in the morning to about 11 at night. Wow. I'm in the wrong business, guys. Yeah. Uh, that's why they call it the dangerous yeah. catch. Can you, yeah, right. <laughs> Can you send me a link to get that job, please? Because <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> Show up on the truck, and that's all it takes. Okay, I can do that, actually. All right, hey, cool. Thanks for calling in, Robert. And uh, I don't All know, right. in probably three or four shows from now, we're going to do it again. So like I said, if you happen to be listening, I'm, I got your information. I'll do a call That's out cool. to you to call us back in. All right, man. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for the call. All right, man. We'll see you. Bye. Uh, that was cool. All right. That was Didn't cool. hear from my dad yet. Though. Was he afraid to call and talk about his belly or yeah. something? Come on, Robert called in, and he's got a 50-incher. <laughs> I would it- guess that uh, I could be at 50 within a, within a year if I tried Actually, six months if I gave that's it an effort. That's 20 more inches. No, no, no. That's only 10. It's 11 more inches for me. I'm at 39. Oh, I think 30. Yeah. Hello, uh, Rick. Is that, is that my dad calling in there now? Or is it just another belly guy? It's just great, Rick. I'm going to put you on the air, okay? <laughs> All right. Got him on hold there? Yeah. All right. Hello? Hello? Hey, Dad. I, I am on a diet. I walk a mile every night. You do? <laughs> With a beer yes. in your hand. Yeah, with uh, with like with a pork chop in your hand? <laughs> <laughs> On a treadmill at three and a half miles an hour. Wow. So what's your measurement again? 44. Uh, you only uh, you only got five inches on me, actually. That's uh, I, I, I heard 39. How, how, you, 
you're catching up. Yeah, yeah. I am catching up. Got, you don't even that doesn't you don't even drink beer though, really, do you? I do. I have I have probably about two Coronas a week. Two Coronas a week. So there's not going to put on the pounds. Uh, stepping up. Are you uh, are you hitting the uh, drive through at McDonald's a couple times a week, Dad? Nope. I'm, I'm eating very healthy. Yeah, like what? I, I'm I'm eating. Now I'm on the Subway diet. I eat the, the six chicken <laughs> turkey grinder. Do you really? But you have to walk yes. the Subway to make that work. <laughs> yeah. I you're really on the Subway diet. Yes, I am. So do you have a Subway sandwich every day? Every single day, turkey with Did, veggies, salt, and pepper. Uh, and nice. and how long have you been I'm on that? How long have you been on that? Uh, about four weeks. And is it has it working for you? Were you at like you know sixty before you started? <laughs> <They're> melting off. <laughs> Actually, I'm down to a forty. It's hot down there, right? I was at I was at, at forty four. Now I'm down to forty two. Okay. Well, it seems to be working then, I guess, huh? It does. It's the treadmill that helps. Yeah. Well, you ought to increase your beer consumption just to counter all that. Well, Bonnie does that for me. <laughs> she drinks your beer for you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I just wanted okay. to, just want to talk to you about your belly then, and I appreciate you calling in. Okay, son. <laughs> Talk to you soon, Dave. Thank you. great. What a crazy Your guy. Your pops huh? called in. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Should have had him tell, like, stupid stories about me or something, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a whole other segment yeah, for another yeah. show. We could have gone on for a while check. about that. <laughs> All right. Good old pops out in Connecticut. I ought to make him send us East Coast beer. Yeah. You know? What's he got to do? Didn't do anything. You out send there. us Coronas. <laughs> yeah, like, is Corona East Coast? No, Dad. No, it's uh, South Coast. <laughs> South Coast. Actually, the third coast. Right. <laughs> you guys see that movie? Uh, uh, the day after tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. She isn't that great of a movie. It's got some good effects, but you know what the best scene in the movie is, right? It's when the Mexican, when the Mexicans actually close off the border to America oh, yeah, yeah, and they yeah. won't let us across the border. Yeah. I think that's so funny. That's it's just great. great. They're like, uh, nope, sorry guys, you <laughs> suck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just thought I'd bring that up real quick because I, uh, just saw it yesterday and then we were talking about the South border. I think there's another call coming in. Is it another beer belly? No, oh, hang on. We got another, another, another caller. There's obviously several out there. I guess so. They, People they like this. this. Hello, oh, you're on the air. Weird. Hey, this is Troy Federson from, uh, California. Oh, is it Troy? Is Troy. Right? He's in the yeah, does. Yeah, I know some of you guys. Oh, okay. What's <laughs> up, Troy? So, I printed out a book not too long ago called The Drink Beer, Get Thin Diet. Oh. And That's the right of Justin's alley. Yeah. Go well, on. It's just about what you're talking about on some of these things. No nutrition information on these labels. Yeah. Because you can actually go to this book and it'll tell you the carbs for every, just about every beer you can imagine. Right. And its whole premise is if you limit your carbs... And then have no more than one third related to beer, you're going to be okay. Oh, right. And this guy has got his picture in there, how much weight he's lost. Yeah. So I recommend this if you want to just know. I mean, I think it's worth it for the carbs. Absolutely. But then I got to, but see, now I'm trying to, I'm thinking of your ratio here, which is only a third of my carbs can come from beer. And I'm guessing right now that 60% of my carbs come from beer. Just look at total carbs. A ballpark figure. I know. I'm telling you that 60% and, of my total and carbs. you thought you'd never use that fifth grade math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, right. The problem is you can't have more than about two or three beers per day. And if you want to have more, you have to drink like Michelob Ultra. Oh, come on. Could he just eat less? Um, well, that's the thing. I like the way you're thinking, Doc. <laughs> yeah. You know, drink the beer but eat less food and just eat yeah. steaks. That's pretty much what he does. Right, right. Although, could it be chicken instead of steak? Because I don't really eat red meat. 
I think anything but carbs except your beer. Yeah. So so if I if I'm Eat having bacon. I'm, I'm, instead of my sandwiches that I'm eating every day, You're I can set. I can cut out the bread and just do that whole lettuce yeah. wrap thing. Right, yeah. You don't need that. Yeah. And then still drink the beer I want to drink, right? That's the whole. That's the whole idea. You're gonna uh, drink the beer anyway. We're gonna lose weight. Yeah, you're right. That's why I'm, try- I'm trying to find this uh, loophole. Because I'm gonna <laughs> drink the beer either way. Now, you say you printed this book out, like you just get it online or what? Yeah, you go to um, www.drinkbeergetthindiet.com. <laughs> Drink beer. And it's like get- 160 pages, but the last half of the book is carbs for all the beers. Okay. And he had to go through a lot of stuff to get the breweries to collect all this for him. And then right. there's recipes in here, too. But I'm not so much interested in cooking with the beer, you know. Ooh, that reminds me. I, I was going to talk to you guys about cooking with beer. Cooking with beer is good stuff, man. Yeah. Um, good on chicken. I would like to talk just, to that yeah, guy. Yeah, cook a little, drink a little, cook a little. Drink <laughs> yeah. a little. I want to get that guy in there to talk to him just about, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah his and, name's um, Bob Skillnick. Okay. Bob I think Skillnick. I paid less than $4 to download this book, and you can probably get it on Amazon, too. Oh, dude, that's worth it to me. Can we borrow from you? <laughs> Look at how cheap <laughs> yeah, like, we are. <laughs> uh, $4. You probably get can it we that borrow yours? Get it for free on Chinese website. <laughs> yeah, we can find it. Come yeah, on. Okay. We got hackers. <laughs> Drink beer, get thin. What a great marketing tool right there. I mean, it works for me already. Don't yeah, don't distract yeah, Don't distract the hackers because they're working on the website. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Hey, thanks, Troy. Okay. Bye. Appreciate hey, Troy. it. Talk to you soon. Wait, wait, Troy, Troy. Yeah. Uh, what are you drinking? Oh, interesting, actually. I'm drinking an IPA from Guernsey, which is an island south of Great Britain. I just got back from London yesterday. Ooh. Nice. Cool. And what's weird is it's 3.8% alcohol by volume, so it's not a real IPA. It's kind of a malty, bitter kind of thing. <laughs> and they call it an IPA. Well, they it's call an it IPA. English beer. Yeah. Wow. I tell you, the IPAs are just different. We have, it's almost like ours actually shouldn't be called IPAs. Yeah. We think that those aren't IPAs, but it's actually more that ours aren't IPAs. Yeah. We should have come up with another name like. So well, how is it? Called West Coast. It's good beer? Uh, I'm going to drink something else next. I'll, I'm going to drink um, a Czech beer next. Okay, so it's not that good then, huh? Yeah. Well, don't call it a Budweiser. <laughs> oh yeah. Hey, Troy, correct me <laughs> on the, uh, on the Budweiser thing that I screwed up. Yeah, you butchered the name. It's Budweiser. <laughs> That's the name of the of the city and it's the brewery. The name of the city. So uh-huh. you got two famous brewing towns. You have Pilsen. Yeah. Everybody can say that. So of course that became f- famous, and now that you get the name Pilsner. Right. But who can say Chesky Budjevice or whatever Chesky Budjevice? So apparently that not one me. You don't know as well. They just call it Budvar. Right. And of course they bought up the. Um, well, then Budweiser took the name. Okay. And it means um, king. So it's king of beers comes yeah. from that. Gotcha. And. They're equal on equal footing there. You have basically like here you have Miller Coors and um, and Budweiser. There you've got uh, Pilsen beer and and the Bud Var, Var beer and maybe one other. Okay, they should have changed their city's name. You know, it around the, easier around the beer would have been a lot easier, cheaper too. Screw history. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, that's what I call it history. I think Doctor Scott mentioned you can get it under um, Czech Var name here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Like a, it just uh, everywhere. has a bunch of beer, really? Uh, at Bevmo. So Czechvar, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> I just say it every week. So Czechvar is Budvar? Yeah. Oh, it, okay. It is. Yeah. yeah, they just can't call it Budvar. Here, right, okay. Yep. It's a little different. They pasteurize it more. It's not quite the same thing. It's, it's, it's like not the, quite as yeah. fresh, the but... Pilsner or Kell is just not as good here either, but... Right, but, I think but it's on par with that. The Czechvar actually comes in brown bottles, which helps it a lot. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. 
And does it look like, does it have a Budweiser-looking label on it? Like, is it red and white and all that, too? Yeah, red well, it says silver. Checkvar in the same way that the yeah. original bottles say Budvar. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken, it's got, got some li- old-fashioned ladies, you know. Gotcha. With the, the holding the beer mugs on it. Oh, I like that. That's not what you're looking at, though. Uh, it's not? <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, Troy, thanks very much. Okay. All right, we'll talk Bye. to you soon. See you, Troy. See you tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. All right. Hey, we're getting good caller information in yeah, today. Yeah, that's the most phone calls we've ever had. Yeah, like, for example, Robert and Charlotte has a 50-inch gut, and that's important. Yes. And I'm glad he called in to tell us. Your dad in that's Connecticut's got radio. a 44. My dad's got a 44. If he keeps on this stupid Subway diet, though, he's going to be smaller than me the next time yeah, I see him. He's got to walk Think about all the bread, though. <laughs> what about he the bread? lives up on, like, a mountain. I think it's a really long walk to the Subway. But I guess that's the point. Yeah, only uphill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just right down is easy. He could skateboard down and he walk could. back. Would do it. Get to walking, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you want to do a tasting? Let's of course do you do. Nah. Um, we got a Belgian beer here. It was given to me by our, our friend Roger over at Drake's, and he gave me a bunch of them. Oh, I had, a, I had a really tall one in there. I forgot to show you too, Doc. When I was showing you all the beers, he gave me a big one with like a cork in it and everything. Damn you! Blast! Yes, <laughs> blasted man. Um, so we're gonna try this one just because it's sort of true to our lecture at the end of the show, and we're gonna compare it to the Belgian style guidelines a bit. Um, although Doctor Scott says there's a lot of gray area with those two, so uh, it's gonna be you know interesting. But we'll just give you you know we'll tell you what it's called if if anybody here can pronounce it, and then um, you know we'll give you some of its some of its style. I'll tell you already right now that it's of the blonde version of the. Of the Belgians. Uh, I think that there's typically, there's an amber, there's a, a blonde, and a, and a dark, correct? Is, is sort of the, well, That's at least beer. according <laughs> to the BJCP, it says that there's, there's generally the three things, and this one is a blonde looking one. I don't, I'm just yeah. looking at sour. it in their glasses yep. here. It smells sour. It already smells sour. It could have been, I mean, who knows how long Roger's had it. He said he's been in the Beer of the Month club the for, that for could, that could ages. Be on purpose, and, um, but he kept it nice, kept it cold. Oh yeah, it was definitely cold, and I've kept it cold since he gave it to me. Let me take a little smell here. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. it's if it's completely sour smelling there's even. Some, there's it's, some bread in there. It's kind of sour and citrus at the same. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's got the it's got a strong white head. I'll tell you that it's, it seems to be sticking around for a while. It's a it's little. Good. It's got that horsey. That does the horse horse like a goatee kind of. Yeah. Thing. All right, I'm gonna take a drink too. It's very carbonated. Yes. Almost like a champagne, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, it's actually very very carbonated. All right, taking a drink. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's what? Ooh, it's, it's lambic. It's lambic. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've never had a lambic. I don't even. Oh, know. you have. There you go. There you go. This is a lambic. Yep. It's not a Belgian. Well, well it's a, a lambic is it's a Belgian, Belgian lambic. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're say, you, you're noticing that because of the wild yeast flavors you can and things smell like that. that aroma, that yeah. sour horsey, which is coming from wild bacteria. Wild, and stuff wild yeast and bacteria. Yeah, on purpose. I, I like it though. Yes, it's good. It's a lot yeah. of flavor. In True it. to style. Yeah, yeah. What's Definitely. It, what's it called? You got the bottle over there. Anybody? Can anybody pronounce that thing? I don't know. Try. <laughs> I know it is a product. Yeah, that one is a, a, a product of Belgium. Yes, it did say that. It did say that on it. Here, let me take another drink here. Hmm. What is it, Daniela? Rheinert. Here, you say it. It's called Rheinert. Wild ale. Oh, Reinhardt Wild Ale. Oh, it says it's a Flemish Wild Ale, which is a Lambic, right? Okay. Reinhardt Flemish Wild Ale. It's 9% alcohol by volume. It's in one of those little stubby bottles with the with Preg- a fat, pregnant neck. Yeah, the yeah. pregnant, fat-looking neck on it. 
Like uh, you. Oh, you. Like you'll look at it in a few <laughs> yeah, months. <laughs> yeah, give me some time. It's bottle conditioned, says right here, which we're going to talk about in our carbonation too, I assume. And, uh, yep, it's a product of Belgium. So there you go. The legendary Cunning Fox Reinert Flemish Wild Ale. True to form. It's a, it's got some citrusy stuff happening mm-hmm. there. It's definitely <laughs> a little bit sour. <laughs> and it's Although I, I had expected that a lambic would be more of a, of a thick tasting beer, but it's not thick at all. It's actually very light. It's usually white, you know, bright and good and nice on your tongue and. Yeah. And it's got a lot of back flavor to it. Yes, you're right. It takes a long and time even, to make one of these. A lot of wheat. It's even got a mouthfeel like a champagne, too, mm-hmm. w- because of all the carbonation and because of how light it is. And it's also yep. dry, so it, to me it's got a mouthfeel like a, like a champagne. Yep. The, the wild yeast and the bacterial will make it really dry. Mm. It'll, it'll ferment it way down. Yeah. I mean, it dries right up off your tongue. As soon as you take a swallow, it vanishes. Yeah. This, the, the flavor sticks around, yeah. But, yeah. The, but the dry, it really just sort of evaporates. I mean, it's kind of like dirty socks, but you got to appreciate that. Well, it's, it's like history. It's, it's history. <laughs> maybe dirty socks after you walked through a, a lemon field or something because of that okay, citrusy yeah, The thing. heather field. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I like it. All right, so try that one out if you guys want. Um, we're going to do another one at the end of the show, uh, although, yeah, we're going to have to put that back in the fridge. I think it's been popped. Uh, um, I might as well just do it now. Want to do it now? Well, yeah, because yeah. it's going to go flat, isn't it? All right, we'll try one more. Go, you can fill them up first. I'll finish mine. Uh, this one is is called like Lucifer, right? It's a fairly famous one. Is uh, it really? Yeah, you can find it. Also a Belgian, correct? Yeah. Okay. So Lucifer, which uh, also Roger gave to me. He gave me like seven beers. Who's, he gave me a, who's Lucifer? The devil man. <laughs> like he's my dad. He's the <laughs> That's my that's my pops. <laughs> Just kidding. For any of those of you who are in the Bible Belt, I'm actually a really nice Christian kid. Okay. Same color. Same color. It's another light blonde. It looks like a Pilsner to me. Really um, clear. Although I'm assuming it doesn't taste like it. No. Yeah, i got to finish. I can't, like, just pound this one. It's too sour. Yeah, it's sour. Just oh. pound it. Oh, let that out. Don't make Feel me better? Come over there. Okay, I pounded it. Oh, bad, bad idea. Man. What do you... No. Actually, Your face right now just looks... <laughs> looks like hers. Yeah. Smoky. It has a... You know what? I'll tell you what the alcohol taste is in that. It's a lot like gin. It has, and maybe that's the dry alcohol thing happening. But the but the alcohol flavor, if you can just sort of isolate that that you're yeah. tasting, is very much like a gin and tonic type of flavor. This beer is pretty good. The next one. Okay, so the Lucifer again, very carbonated, although smaller bubbles than the other one. Yep. Um, it also it looks much like a pilsner. Has a great head, but not as thick as the last head. It's a lot thinner. Um, it tastes a little old, a little mm-hmm. cardboardy. Does it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably is. It smells better already. Just I haven't tasted it, but just the smell to me smells I'll, I'll better. I don't get a lot of smell out of it. Maybe it's good that's why it's better. <laughs> the other one just doesn't taste like, it probably smell like socks. Smelling the previous one too. Could be because I just burped. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Let's see. Now it's not bad. Eight uh, percent. This one would creep up on you quick. It's it's a uh, what's the metallic thing happening? You getting that? Yeah. Definitely a metallic flavor in there. Uh, which I, is is that that's that can't be a true to style flavor. It's it, old. It's in, just yeah. that it's old. Yep. So does would, does the glass bottle give off a metallic flavor when it's really no, no, old? Things, or? No, things break down and they turn into other things. Okay. Oh, there you there's go. There's a lot they, of they turn there's into a another. lot of metabolism and a lot of reactions that go on in there. Beer goes in stages. Yeah. And some are supposed to be in a later stage. 
I've had better ones of Lucifer. Oh, you have? Uh, but the same style as that one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just, just newer. You know, how long has mm. Roger had this thing? Yeah, who knows? It's You know, the thing is is that it's not bad. because if No, you it's take, not bad at all. If you take your first taste, which does not have the metallic flavor to it, it's actually really smooth and nice. Mm-hmm. But it's as soon as you swallow that that metallic flavor then kind of fills up the back yeah, of your mouth. It does have a good maltiness up front. All right, so this one's Lucifer. Uh, I'd recommend giving this one, definitely giving this one a try if you can find one that's not if old. You can find it on tap, which I have. Oh, you have? Yeah. Where? Where have you found that on tap? Um, I've had it on tap at uh, Tornado. Okay. Brew pub and brewery, right? Yeah. yeah. That's just, that's no, no, it's just a it's just a bar. Just a bar. Okay. It's like a biker bar in San Francisco, but they they've got just a big two page list of Belgians yeah. that oh, okay. they got to go down to the basement to get. Gotcha. They let you in there? Did you dress up in your biker stuff? No. <laughs> no, it's not like that. <laughs> Great sausage place next door, though. Is that right? No, but, uh, you know... It's in the Castro, then? No. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, actually... No, yes, no, no, no. It's close. It's, no, it's, it's in near the hate. Only Daniela got my sausage joke. <laughs> but I, I did... There's a guy outside playing banjo. Ah. With his hat out, so I gave him two bucks and so I could play his banjo. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I just want money to play. How about I... Can I play your banjo? <laughs> Here's two bucks. Cool. And so you rocked out for a little while? Yeah. You're fun. supposed to bring in your banjo, or don't forget. All right, all right. Yeah. I want a little rocking out. <laughs> yeah. I want to record it. I want to write yeah. like a, a, a mid-show interlude or something that's oh, on yeah. banjo, you know? Are you going to sing? Some background. No. Come on. <laughs> But uh, I can't. Uh, you know, write a brewing network. Song. I can't top the uh, homebrew. Homebrew, yeah. Pale <laughs> no, is a friend of mine, so I don't. I don't uh, even want to try. Okay. Mm. Okay. So are there we, you are go. Are we taking a break here soon? Because you want to refill. Take a break and then we'll start the discussion. I'm out of beer. All right. You want to do that? Yeah. I suppose I can do that. Okay. Uh. Excuse me, guys. We're gonna take a really quick break. We're gonna come back. And we're gonna start a carbonation discussion. We're gonna try to power <laughs> through it. <laughs> yeah, I think I just started I our carbonation yeah. Let's just go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Get your questions ready. You can go to the chat room on our homepage, log in as a guest, or call 888-401-BEER. You're listening to a bunch of guys talk about beer. The Brewcasters on the Brewing Network. Well, that was a good tasting of Belgians because they were all really high in alcohol content. Yeah, I can't, yeah baby. I can't see my hands. <laughs> yeah, but that has to Just do with your work. sunstroke yeah. and your beer out on the boat. Yeah, that <laughs> more than the Belgians. Well, where'd you go? Well, he's young. He's got plenty of brain cells. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's fine. I'm doing okay. And he's not going to be a doctor or anything. Let's face it. No. <laughs> <laughs> he's all right. I'm involved with beer. <laughs> Me too. Mm-hmm. Doc, were you homebrewing before you finished med school? No, I was just partying hardy. <laughs> I was going to say, because He's still partying hardy. I don't know that you would have graduated if you were homebrewing. Uh, I, I, I was, there was times that I was wondering if I was going to graduate <laughs> out with my friends. I hope that my none of your... My best experience with Dr. Scott was in Colorado at the GAB three <laughs> years ago. Yeah? I think he dropped about 200 bucks on me for a uh, strip tease. Is that right? We went upstairs to the upstairs room, oh, yeah. and he would look like... Uh, deer caught in the headlight. So <laughs> I needed him, I needed to warm him up a little bit. I was 21. I was like, nice. Yeah. Hey, that's a good friend right there. Yeah. <laughs> We've been through a lot together. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah. I hope that none of your uh, patients are listening. Doc, when you say, I'm you never really know. surprised I even graduated. <laughs> yeah, okay, see you next week. Actually, we're gonna send Daniela over to you. So uh, cool. <laughs> 
How are you feeling about that now? Uh, come on, Daniel. Hey, you guys can hey, have a beer up, beforehand. Look at his <laughs> John's showing his he tooth did that. action. He did that. Good work. Oh, yeah. Good work to it. Yeah. 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 And he fixed the root canal I had done that it got infected, mm. and then he fixed it and plugged the hole and gave it me. It made my, it look pretty. Made again. it look pretty. It's all white. It was See? discolored. It was dying. It was did black. you guys drink together before he did it? No, that was about <laughs> eight in the morning when I had it done. Yep. Yeah. Give me when I'm fresh. <laughs> <laughs> at seven. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm drinking. Not at eight. Roger uh, actually asked me the other day when we were at Drake's. He goes. Uh, is Dr. Scott really a doctor? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, he's totally a doctor. He's our in-house doctor. Every good radio show has got to have an in-house doctor. I'm convinced of that. You know, we're at Makes least good radio. It does make good radio. Because there's just something about it. Like, even if you were drunk all the way through med school, Doc, uh, there's a certain credibility that comes along that whatever you say, if I ask you a question and you answer it, I'm going to go, cool. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like I'm not really going to argue about okay. it. You know what I'm saying? Because you know, I'm a communication major, and, and well, that just pretty much means I'm dumb. I'm a dropout. <laughs> so there's no reason to to question your authority. Yeah. Got to have a doctor. I, I dropped out of college for beer. <laughs> you did, didn't you? I did. You got the job at B3, and I dropped out, and I said, "Screw it! Hey, I'll work at B3." Here's a success story for yeah. you. <laughs> I picked and packed all your orders out there, homebrewers. That's right. Yes. Well, you want to be a brewer one day, though, too. Like, well, I mean, you're a brewer now. Yeah. You know what I mean. You, you like, you wouldn't mind owning a brewery. Sure. Yeah. Brew house, pub house. So it could it could yeah. turn out to be the best decision you ever made. That's true. Or the worst. <laughs> Talk to us again well, in a year. Yeah. Or next month with my waist. Kind <laughs> yeah, we'll check that yeah. waistline. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and it's like, no. <laughs> it's over. Well, college wasn't going to make you any slimmer. Yeah. No. So I did make me money. Actually, it did because I was so poor. Yeah. I couldn't afford to eat. Ramen and That's beer. That's why I drink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jello and, mm-hmm. and mac and cheese. Although the Jello was also filled with vodka. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why I drank so much Schaefer because I was so damn poor. Yeah. The one beer to have. I was, more than one. I was natural light myself, which is just as bad, if not worse. Like, I think the worst story I had was my roommate and I were just cramming for finals. And we'd eaten all the Jello, we'd eaten all the mac and cheese. There's nothing left in the house. Yeah. We went up to the top shelf, and there's one can <laughs> of uh, clam chowder. Uh-huh. But we didn't have any milk to make it with, uh-huh. so we made it with water. <laughs> and it's just not the same when you're looking at the little dudes in your bowl. Yeah, yeah, it's not the same. What we oh used to do God. was, you know, you could get mac and cheese for like 13 cents a box, and you know. If it was on sale, you'd get like 10 yeah. boxes. Yeah. So we'd eat it for about 10 days straight. But in order to... Start to, to turn orange. In then. order to change <laughs> the scenery, we would just add different frozen vegetables to it. Right. You know, like you could put peas in there or corn or whatever. You know, just, just to make it different. Sometimes yep. we'd, uh, we we could afford like a pound of bacon. We'd chop up some bacon and throw there that in, in yeah. the mac and cheese. Sounds good, actually. Yeah. We lived for a long, long time on mac yeah. and cheese. Awesome. <laughs> Which just goes to show that you can. So I don't want to hear you complaining about being poor out there, all right? Buy some mac and cheese and some peas. Yeah. Beer. Fine. All right. Why don't we get on to the carbonation talk so we can um, answer some questions and spread some knowledge. Okay. Okay. Here's the deal. Uh, there's a couple of ways to carbonate your beer, as most of you probably know. Some of you may not have tried all of them. Um, I, myself, I, I don't think I have. Um, I started out... Um, 
I guess you'd call it bottle conditioning, right? Because I was adding the corn sugar mm-hmm. and bottling all my beer and uh, waiting for carbonation. And with me, it turned out that I was waiting with my fingers crossed for carbonation. <laughs> because or miss. My first batch I ever brewed turned out great. One of the best batches of beer I ever brewed, actually. It was it was great. It was an IPA. I just bought a kit from B3. Uh, and it carbonated perfect. It was really nice. My second batch in ESB... Never carbonated, not one bit. We tried to fix that nothing. Too. We tried. Yeah. Even do, uh, that's the one that I talked to you about too, Doc. And you, you, actually, there was you two batches, yeah. and you told me to raise the temperature. Yeah. It worked on one; it didn't work yeah. on the other. We'll get into those details in a second. Yeah. Um, and then my my third batch was fine. My fourth batch was the gusher. So, uh, which is when, you know, it's so overcarbonated, fermentation probably wasn't done, or I had a wild yeast or something happening there. Yep. And, uh, and it actually. Or you were drinking when you're putting the, the sugar in there. Which is most likely the case. And, um, so. Is that a cup? A gusher, you know, you pop the top and the thing just never stops foaming. It just. Mm. It, and it, you, you put your mouth on it right away, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, what's happening? And then, and, and. Pour the, a new pitcher. Oh, the gas that that'll give you? Yeah. Oh, man. Trying to drink a gusher? No. Don't I drink, do that, man. I drank all of them. What are you talking about? I know. The ones I didn't drink were the ones that exploded. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what I would do was take them, put them in the sink, pop the top, and let them sit there and gush for an hour and a half. Yeah. And then they were right down to the perfect carbonation level, and I drank them. Did they you were take a final gravity reading? Uh, what's that? Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's been three days. It yeah. must be ready. Yeah, I don't. That rem- plays a huge, huge yeah. role in You're right. and, carbonation and, of your beer. And let's get into talking about that, yeah. because uh, I do actually... Uh, often forget to take my final gravity and that was probably one of the batches that I did it sat for a long time I, it was actually in the in the uh, fermenter for two and a half weeks so I just went by the assumption that's that it okay. was done but yeah you would think and that's what two I thought for ales is usually good enough and but. I didn't do a gravity reading but which is which is why dr. Scott says it's probably a bacteria or something that got Ooh, in there funky. And, and producing some more carbonation okay so that's one of the ways you can do it which we're going to talk about is bottle conditioning and then obviously the other way is forced carbonation right, right. and am I missing anything any mysterious way to carbonate uh, there's a carbonation lid which is forced carbonating but yeah, you do it like yeah. one Still day forced carbonation okay no, you that the yeast do it or you do it for them. Oh, like right. Okay. I like to start with the primitive things uh, because I'm a, sort of a primitive guy. So why don't we go right to bottle conditioning? And there are cases uh, it, you can buy a lot of commercial beers that will actually advertise that they're bottle conditioned. Mm-hmm. One of the Belgians we just Mostly had. Mostly Belgians are. Con- they are bottle yeah, conditioned? Traditionally, a lot yes, of them okay. you can only get in a bottle. Yeah. Okay. So uh, for some of them, it's really a part of the process. For other home brewers, it's, it's just an inexpensive way to carbonate. Right. So let's start with that, Doc. Okay. Uh, Basically, the principle behind bottle conditioning is that before you ever carbonate your beer, you bottle it. And before you bottle it, you add corn sugar or uh, are there other sugar uh, substances? If there's a ways to do it. You can have uh, new beer, uh, fresh wort you put in there, uh, put it high croissant. It's not finished beer. You can put that in there. Whatever has some sugar to feed the yeast again. Okay. So and if there's sugar left, you're saying? There, well, you... you Sometimes you can stop the fermentation at a certain point, mm-hmm. cap it, okay, uh, and then go with that way, or ferment it all the way out. Have another wort going, okay. and that's not all the way done. Put that in there. Oh, all right. Um, and papazian does that, or add really? mm-hmm. or add uh, sugar into it. Okay. Now, if you're Ryan Heights go out, you're gonna need to put wort. You gotta do the wort. What's the advantage of doing, uh, of, of, of putting a wort in there instead well, of a Well, it's a Ryan Heights go out. You have, to, you can't put sugar in there. Okay. Cause that's not part of the four okay. things. I think purity too, I, it would probably be more beneficial to the beer too. Well, yeah, but you gotta, you gotta take gravities and you're gonna, you know, if you're not really right on with your measurements, uh, mm-hmm. you're gonna get gushers. Yeah. yeah. 
Now, are you striving to create a wort then that's identical to the wort you're that using you first the wort created from your boil? It's the same wort. You, you just, just say no. You, you usually have another beer, or yeah, brew the same day that you bottle. I guess. Yeah. yeah, or the so day it before. So the flavor profile of the wort doesn't mm-hmm. matter then. No, it does. It does matter. Right. So you, but so then you have to brew the same beer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Or you, you don't want to save the wort. If you want to keep the same, some people will actually save the wort and they'll put it in the refrigerator and then right. they'll reuse and it. The, and then you can use it again because it's got sugar in it, unfermented sugar, which the right. yeast will use again. Once you cap it, you can't. It won't volatilize off, so it's it reabsorbs back into the liquid and okay. carbonates. And taking that wort and, and, and refrigerating it, if you save it, uh, the temperature of the fridge is going to keep that bacteria down, right? Because it's just... As long as it, yes long as and it, no, though. Yes. I mean, temperature, I had it a slows it down. loss at 40 degrees. Funky, I had a wild yeast and it went dry, okay. and it was infected, I had to throw it, it out. It okay. slows Eight it down, old. but as long as you're the inside of wherever you know, the vessel is clean... Okay. You're good, but okay. again, what Jamil said, you're not sterilizing, you're sanitizing. Yeah. So if you still got a few of them in there, and you knock the temperature way down, okay, you're probably okay. All right, you're probably better off uh, starting over again and okay. doing something fresh. If you're going to go that way, the easiest way is just, and the easy way to measure how much carbonation you're going to have is to use corn sugar, okay, or cane sugar, or whatever else you want. Just that's easier. kind of the downside of corn sugar too. You can't actually control the carbonation level in your beer. You can't. No. Right. Which is so it's a hit or miss. You could have an over, over-carbonated beer. Undercarbonated. Well, or undercarbonated beer. Yeah. It depends. It depends on the yeast uh, and how much they're going to ferment yeah. more or they're going to poop out because of the, the alcohol content. It's not about – It's part of it is measuring how much sugar you put in there because mm-hmm. you're putting a set amount of sugar in there. But what John's saying is uh, H yeast is going to be a little bit different, and if it – Ferments a lot. Yeah. You're going to get high carbonation. If it ferments just a little and it poops out for a lot of reasons, maybe because of the alcohol content. Okay. Uh, and then drops, or it's a highly flocculent yeast. Okay. And it drops out. Uh, it it'll leave it, and it won't be it won't be fermented. Okay. And, and you won't have a carbonated beer. So there's right. a lot of reasons for that. What about temperature though? I mean, as far as bottle condition, what temperature ideally? Because I I fixed a customer's problem once. He had it at like 70 degrees. Hey, it's been three weeks, no carbonation. I'm like, look, put a blanket around it, put it out in this weather that we have right now, 95. Yeah. yeah. In four days, he had carbonation in his beer. Right. Four it, or five days. Okay. Yeast like, well, they don't like above 90, 95, but they're really happy at about 80, 85. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, but they throw off a lot of funky flavors, but for as much as the, the little amount of sugar that you put in there, you're not going to get those off flavors okay. very much, but you wouldn't want to ferment your, your base beer at 85. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're happy. Yeah, lager yeast love that. Yeah. Okay, but that they really throw off a lot of funky stuff, and mm-hmm. you don't really want to do that. Okay, now I've read a lot of things uh, about people saying that th- that they bottle condition and have never had a problem with it. They they it, it works for them all the time, and I'm assuming that commercial breweries who bottle condition have mastered this sort of thing too. So, is there a process that we can describe to help home brewers that is the best way? To ensure that your bottle conditioning is going to give you proper carbonation. No. There's not. No. It's still no. going to be hit or miss. No, you got the guys that are out there that are very good at it. They know their own beer, they know their own system, they know their own yeast, and they've gotten just a good feel for it. The guys okay. that are just con- continuously doing it right every time. Right. Maybe they're not trying, maybe they just got a good second feel for it. Okay. And they make some really nice beers and, and it's pretty, pretty consistent. Okay. So it's not formulaic, you're saying? There's no formula for... I mean, I know you there's can. a formula for how much you know sugar you're supposed to add per... 
you know, uh, amount of beer. But, but there's a lot of other variables in there. That's the biggest one is that. You could it doesn't matter to it, too. It really doesn't matter the temperature-wise. It's whatever the yeast you're using and what it's going to do. Right. Okay. If you got a highly flocculent yeast that doesn't isn't very alcohol tolerant, it's not going to give you everything that the high temperature, high alcohol guy is going to do. Okay. Right. How about this? Aside from if you if you have a carbonation failure like I had, aside from trying to raise the temperature, is there another thing you can possibly do to save the beer? I would add like a dry yeast. You know, one was in the bottle already. Yeah, that's what I was gonna. So now you've all, you got all your beer bottled. You've tried to raise the temperature. Is it a lost cause, or is there something else? Some you can guys do? have actually poured it all out back into like a balling bucket. Okay. And pitched some more yeast, and then ball it back up again. Okay. To get a secondary fermentation in the bottle. But you're gonna get a lot of oxidation. Okay. And but the it, corn, though that secondary fermentation in the bottle will uptake that oxygen though. You, but you might get aeration. So you get like a aeration, and, and and right away it won't it won't matter. But the beer won't last as long. But you can't you just add beer, yeast, right? You got to add a fermentable again too, don't you? No, there's still sugar in beer. You know, if you know your gravity, your final gravity. Okay, that would help. Well, a lot of especially a lot of these beers, uh, they don't use the same yeast they ferment with that they carbonate with. Okay, mm-hmm. they'll use a lot of times they'll ferment with an ale yeast. They'll strip that out of there, filter it or whatever, and then they'll put in a lager yeast because it's more temperature tolerant mm-hmm. and it's cleaner. So some of these bottles that you try to try to culture from, you're not going to get the fermenting yeast out mm-hmm. of it. Some of them, they do both. There's a couple of websites that tell you which bottles do and which bottles don't. So if you're going to culture and do that one. But uh, you could try changing your yeast, uh, repitching before you go into it, especially in you know cold winter yeah. kind of thing. Your yeah. house is kind of cold. Repitch with a with a with a lager yeast. Okay, and it'll stay in suspension longer, and it won't mind the cooler temperature, and you'll you'll still get it carbonated. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got a question about bottle conditioning here uh, for a saison ale. When I bottle condition, it's from the chat room. When I bottle condition my saison after a long secondary, I want a very high carbonation level appropriate to the style. Uh, I also want to add some fresh yeast, and the yeast he's doing is uh, WLP five six five, and he wants to do that at bottling. How much priming sugar and yeast should I add at bottling for five gallons? And just as an added uh, piece of info, he's going to champagne bottles to do so. Okay, I, I don't. Bottle condition at all. Okay. Uh, I got several reasons for that. Uh, but with the Saison, um, what Chris White told me was the Saison yeast won't get you dry enough. And you want to pitch something else in there that will help dry it out that's more tolerant. Okay. Uh, even just a, a California ale, he says it's fine. Most of the, it, it's very neutral. Okay. And it'll help dry it out. Don't put it in at the end. Put it in about two thirds. Is the, the five sixty five a saison yeast? Uh, Do you know, John? It's a Belgian. I, I think it's a saison. It's a saison. Belgian yeast. Okay. Um, if you want a lot of carbonation in five gallons, it's a cup and three quarters. Okay. It comes to mind. Don't quote me on that. Look it up. Okay. But, uh, that'll probably get you a lot of carbonation, but yeah, pitch a different yeast too. Okay. So, if for example, um, what was I doing for? Uh, I don't even remember. Uh, a, a quarter ounce for, for. You were doing four ounces for five gallons. Okay, four ounces Boiled. for five gallons. Yeah. So if you, so you're you're, you're going to want to do a lot more than that if you want a lot of carbonation, uh, like in a saison. I, th- I think it's a cup or a cup and a quarter is a little average for 
cup of corn sugar. A cup of corn sugar, a cup and a quarter. Okay. If we're highly cup. carbonated, maybe a cup and three quarters. I've I've seen those in recipes. Yeah. Okay. Although I haven't tried it again. Look it up. Okay. I just use that as a benchmark. But okay. And by the way, it's eight 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 four zero one beer. If you have any questions, or you can go to the chat. room. We should on talk about page. this with uh, Vinny when he comes in there in a couple oh, of weeks. Yeah, because okay. he's got a damnation that he bottle conditions. Okay, a Belgian blonde ale. Yeah, right? I love it's getting awesome. Vinny talking about Belgium. But he uses actual champagne yeast for all his conditioning. Okay, no sugar, but he uses champagne yeast because it's he probably stops the fermentation in a certain gravity. Yeah, and then yeah, how do you st- how do you stop fermentation? You could cool, chill it down. Cool, chill it. Yeah. Okay. 40 they used to go to sleep at a certain point. Most gotcha. ales will go to sleep in the low 60s. So it's not that you're transferring it off of No. Of a, you're just cooling it no, down. The yeast is in suspension, but okay. mostly just, yeah, cool it down below fermentation temperatures for an ale. Yeah. Okay. And you've got to take a, take a gravity read and, and pick where you want it. That's okay. a trial and error. Okay. And there's going to be residual sugar left in it, and then the champagne yeast will... will Dry it out quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, the, you're probably going for that for a Belgian style beer, right? Right. And then Vinny makes killer Belgians. I've yeah. had a few of his. And I'm hoping pull, he's bringing some in. Yeah. He will. You're gonna have to definitely. double call him and probably say, bring yeah. in some of his oak beers. Well, the two things that people always want to talk to Vinny about are how much hops can he get in a beer? Yeah. And his Belgians, right? And okay. late, lately, he told me it's just mostly everyone wants to talk about the hop, hop, hop thing. Yeah, and, yeah. and I told him, no, I want him to talk, come and talk to us about the Belgians. Yeah, he's cool. just lit up. He's just, oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll talk to you. It's okay, good. well, we'll get to that. He's got, got cool, cool little things to do with it, and things you want to try, little experiments. It's great. Okay, that's probably going to be a long show. I'm it guessing will. that's in August, right? Yeah, August 14th, I think. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay, why don't we move on to a little more area of your guys' expertise then and, and get into forced carbonation because uh, uh, bottle conditioning is very basic. You're just going to need to perfect your, your, your method there and, and find the best way to know get your, your beer. Know your basic, beer. If yeah. you're doing it and you're consistent at it because you know your beer, you know your system and everything else, you can get killer beers. Okay. Sure. Uh, and there's always the argument that, you get a finer carbonation out of the bottle condition beers and Regan, right. Regan and I go round and round yeah. about that. One. Okay. Um, so let's talk force carbonation then and then, and then get into sort of maybe carbonation to style, you know, cause certain styles are requiring carbonation. Okay. Actually, Troy, when I was on the phone with him earlier, uh, off the air, he had a question about uh, English ales and their carbonation levels, which I think is a good question. Uh, maybe he wants to call back in or I can just, uh, bring it through. But, uh, force carbonation now is using CO2 pressure actually to get carbonation in your beer. If I were to ask you, Doc, what, takes place in order to you know to, to turn co2 into something that s- stays in your beer and actually comes flowing up from the bottom of your beer which to me is fascinating <laughs> am i getting into a really difficult question here or, or can you tell well, me what let's is- just let's just keep it simple okay I mean, let's just say with proper temperature and pressure you will get the co2 to dissolve into the liquid it's got to be cold though the colder it is, the easier it is. Right. But okay. you can go warm, you just need more pressure. So it's it's a variant, and, and they're inversely proportional, pressure and temperature. Okay. Can't warmer and the, temperatures create off flavors, though? Like, it, you have a gas, a liquid, going into, no? Not really, no. That's not really what we're talking about here. Okay. Uh, you're looking at putting volumes of CO2 into solution. Okay. You can do it with lots of pressure and regular temperature. You can lower the temperature. The CO2 wants to dissolve easier in a cold liquid. Okay. Also, you know, warm beer will go flat a lot faster than a, than a cold beer will. Okay. Because it wants to come out of solution that much easier. So the one thing I like about 
to enforce carbonation besides the fact that I don't get so much sludge in the bottom mm. uh, and is that I can dial in exactly how much carbonation I want. Carbonation also has a flavor profile to it. If I get a beer and it's a little too sweet yeah, and it just kind of lays on your palate, you, you can crank up the carbon dioxide a little bit and it will it'll help crisp up that, that flavor profile. Yeah, that makes sense. I've had that. And also, if you're going to be doing any kind of uh, competitions, Carbonation plays a lot of lot of role in the mouthfeel, the flavor profile, and everything. And you want and and to style, which is what competition's all about. Yeah. If you get a great beer if it's not to style, Doesn't it's not matter. gonna it's not gonna do great. Although yeah. if you have a great beer that's to style, mm. two things that's what you're, you're gonna win with. Mm. So you can dial it in with temperature and pressure. Okay. And I was talking to John earlier yesterday about uh, carbonating beers and, and my thought on that one if i'm gonna have a competition beer i over carbonate it just slightly okay it goes into the glass the judges like to swirl it around usually his glass is warm yeah a lot of the carbonation comes off okay well he smells it and that's great because that's what he wants to get yeah by the time he's drinking it it's at the good carbonation level that's a good idea. rather than starting where you are and then losing it and then you got a flatter beer right it just doesn't happen is the only thing that keeps carbonation in a beer counter pressure? Yes. It yes. is. It's just yeah. counter pressure. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not that uh, that CO2 releases because now there's oxygen exposed. It's nothing else but counter pressure. Right. Okay. It, it's equilibrium in the headspace. Totally. Okay. Makes sense. Um, okay. I got a question here. Um, does it matter if you force carbonate at the PSI you're shooting for or extra high for quicker carbonation? I read you should carbonate at the level you're shooting for. But I don't know why. I would say go by taste. You know, find taste your beer and keep it on CO two for long term time. Mm-hmm. You know, two three weeks under forced carbonation, and once you get a flavor that you like, lower it to serving pressure like four to six pounds, mm-hmm. and then bottle like two to three days afterwards. Okay, you know, it's You're, fresh. You got right. the carbonation level you like, and then you can bottle it and then preserve it and then drink away. Okay, but it's not affecting the flavor of the no, beer, it, whether you're it cranking it to 30 it for four d- days? It stresses or? it. You'll get more dropout, probably more pressure on the beer. Okay. And, but you're speeding up the process, you're saving time. What you're doing by increasing you know? the pressure is speeding up the process. Yeah. Okay. Um, Which I like to do. I do I'm it. always doing it. I do it. Uh, I usually crank it up and shake it. Get really? it in there. The problem with doing it with hyper pressure is you're gonna you could over carbonate it then you got to crank it down every couple of days you got to vent it and let it come down on the other side you if you really want to do it right put it at the temperature and pressure and it's going to take a week week and a half to get it where it's supposed to be if you don't want to do that you can make a combination of both you know if it's supposed to be at 12 pounds put it at 20 shake it shake it shake it to a point where it's not over carbonated put it back down to 12 pounds Leave it for a few days, maybe a week at the most, and it will be where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the big danger is just overcarbonating when you're doing it that way, and you can bring it back that way. Okay. Uh, take the gas off and you take the gas off. You got to vent it, you know, every twice a day or so, and it will equalize once you pull the head pressure off, and it'll come back down. Crotchrot posted in there after that question that he. Um he gets better heads when he uh, carbonates slower. You <laughs> said head. Yeah, by the way, any advice that gets you better head, I'm willing to take, Crotch Run. Uh, he gets better head when he carbonates slower and doesn't really know why. I was curious if, if that might be a, 
actually part of the process, or maybe it's coincidence. I'm going with coincidence. coincidence. I, I, mostly the the head retention and stuff has to do with the amount of protein that's in the beer. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So to me, if you're attentive, right, and and you're willing to really watch your beer and get your carbonation level right, I'm not really seeing a reason to to slow carbonate. I mean, I know that you do, John, but what, uh, which I'd like to hear. Uh, but Dr. Scott, you just said if you know, really, yeah. the only factor is over carbonation. So, right. so if yeah. you can stop it at the right time, you get it done yeah. faster. Well, I mean, if I'm going to brew, you're going to take care of your beer. So, yeah. if you're going to do 30 pounds, why not? If you want to have, I'll, beer I'll in do three 30 days. pounds, and shaking it actually will make it go into solution faster. Yeah. Uh, one thing, one trick I use shaking is, it for five minutes. What are we talking here? Yeah. One thing I do is I'll 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 put the gas on. The dip tube on the gas on, on the beer outside okay. with the black, the black one. Yeah. So it bubbles up through the solution, and then I shake it. What's your pressure at? Uh, about thirty. Yeah. Okay. But it's like five minutes, and you're yeah. Well, well you got to shake. You got to shake it, and until you stop hearing the the bubbles coming up. Okay. And then I just then you got to let it sit for a couple of days. If you start to tap it right off of that, it, it's not going to be stable and it's going to come out really fast. Okay. So you're putting it onto the dip side, to the outside. Put it on the dip side and and I shake, shake it, it vigorously? Yes. Really? You're just shaking you it. You watch. Thing up. The more you shake it, that that regulator turns on and the gas goes in because oh. you're actually splashing it inside the keg and creating more surface area for it to dissolve into the solution. Okay. And then when you let it sit for a couple of days, are you still leaving it at 30? No. I'll no. Pop, no, no, no. That's when I crank no. it back down to where it should be by the chart. Yeah. Usually about 12 pounds at, you know, 38 or something. Okay. Oh. Be careful. <laughs> yes. Why, what's the danger? <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Keg exploding? No, no they can, take, they, they can take 130 pounds. Yeah, exactly. So, no, that's not what it is. But uh, shake it around for a while so it doesn't you – know, you won't get it all in there. So you probably won't overcarbonate. You're going to get tired before you shake <laughs> yeah. it. Before You'll stop and then, <laughs> then, then crank it back down to, you know, 10, 12 pounds or right. whatever. Whatever the temperature. Look at – get a chart. Okay. I mostly tell customers five days, 15 pounds of pressure, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Uh, 12 pounds, seven days, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. If you can not touch your beer and let it do its thing for about a week. Yeah. And you come back to it and lower your pressure to serving, like four to six pounds of pressure. Yeah. You're pretty much good. It's always going to be depending just Depending right. all styles. Yeah. Okay. And then you can tweak it from there if you want more, but. Yeah, you have to balance your system. Yeah. Yeah. Too, because, uh, if you're serving at four pounds, you got a flat beer in a few days. Yeah. If, uh, you can keep it up to 12. Crank it, you know, let it down to t- four, pour a few beers mm. and crank it back up. That's a pain in the ass. Plus, the more you drink, you're going to want to creep up your pressure to preserve that carbonation level because you have a certain amount of head space that you're going to fill with pressure. It's okay. whatever pressure's in the tank. Right. Gotcha. Um, you can balance your system by the length of your beer line. Hmm. And the longer the beer line, the more resistance it has. Ideally, what you want to have is your, your carbonating pressure. Let's yeah. talk 12 pounds. At whatever volumes you want, 12 pounds. That's what you should be having it in your kegerator at, 12 pounds. Okay. But you need enough resistance in the line to be just below 12 pounds, maybe 11 and a half. So when you pour it, you got about a half a pound at the faucet that's going to pour a beer and it won't foam. Okay. That's the, you can do the math all you want with, but the different beer lines are a little bit different on their resistance. Okay. When it, you really need to, do the hit and miss thing, cut your beer line shorter, make it longer kind of thing. It's like five to eight feet. 
right. for the beverage that we recommend. I've got so one, longer one, is, is, is better, you're saying. Yeah, well, one, mine's of my, nowhere near one of my lines I have in my kegerators for high carbonated beers. Uh-huh. I have a double regulator. It goes into that keg, maybe that one's at 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. But I have about 12 feet of line, beer line up to the faucet because okay. I want it to come out slower and not foam all over the place. Is that a lighter pounds. beer or a heavier beer? It's usually usually one of my Belgians. Okay, okay. Okay. Or wheat beer. Right. Depends on whatever I want. If I want three three point one volumes in that thing, I can't be pouring it out of a regular faucet. It's gonna come out really fast at twenty pounds, it's all gonna be foam. Gotcha. Right. But that that's the carbonation on that keg those at twenty pounds. You have to because it's right. gotta be equilibrium. I want to keep three point two in that one. Right. Where the other ones I want it two and a half. Right. Well, I don't I only need a shorter line okay. to come up to the faucet. But that's why you have a longer line to preserve yeah, that. Yeah, the, Plus people have the longer line is more resistant so you lose PSI in the longer line. Okay. And there's places on websites you can find what, you know, a three-eighth inch tubing does for per foot, how much pressure drop you get. Yeah. Also, if there's a height difference, if your kegerator's in the basement and your bar's on the first floor, mm-hmm. that's going to be a big difference, too. Right. Plus, if it's not cool, yeah. and it's hot. Yeah, it obviously, would, yeah, it's going to give you that. My uh, my kegerator's in the garage. My garage temperature goes up and down, mm-hmm. and it's an older refrigerator, so that goes up and down, too. Okay. So there's a lot to play with. It's got to be the same temperature and pressure. Think temperature and pressure, those two things. Okay. A question from the chat room is, if you carbonate at 12 pounds and then save it at 4 pounds, doesn't that allow the remaining 8 pounds to dissipate from the beer, leaving it flat? Yes. Yeah? Exactly. So that's why you're saying leave it serving at 12 pounds. Yeah. Or you can just vent and repressurize every time you pour. Right. That's, uh, I used to do that before I, when I first started too. Yeah. It's like I, I pour it at 12 pounds. If you rushing out of that, I get a glass full of foam. Yeah. Or I would reach in, vent the keg yeah. down to about four pounds, then pour a nice beer <laughs> at dinner. Nice beer after dinner, and yeah. then before I went to bed, I'd crank it back up to twelve pounds. I do that with my setup too, actually. And I'll go ahead that and it. you can get by, you can do that, pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, or you can just lengthen the line on your from your keg to the faucet. Okay, and you can leave it at that pressure, so right? And pounds. a lot of times, the first beer is going to be a little foamy, so don't get too egged out about that one. Right? Does uh, it taste sec- funky? Nah. Well, because I usually, I usually. Pour half a glass, throw it away. Yeah. Because what's in the line isn't really pressurized, mm-hmm. and it's a little flat. So yeah. I'll pour half a glass, and then I pour my beer. Right. Just I'll because I don't beer. like the the stuff that's been in the line. Yeah. Beer snob. <laughs> hey, you know? I'm the same way. I'll I made it. It's, I can throw it away. Yeah. I'll dump it to the first half glass. Yeah. It's true. Tastes the better. first half glass <laughs> out of 12. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. <laughs> Why don't we talk about a couple of styles here, just to, just okay. to bring it up. The question I got from Troy over the break, he just was interested because he, he just got back from London. Um, a lot of those cask-conditioned ales um, are a lot flatter than yeah. our ales out here. And uh, I'm wondering if that has something to do with, one, the cask, or yeah. just the style that they're going for, whereas ales in England are typically, if it's a true English ale, just a less carbonated beer. Well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, okay. It, and that's part of it. But a lot of English beers, you want to taste more malty stuff, so they, the, the carbonation's low. And then it turns into a style. Yeah. And part of it was because they couldn't pressurize the cask. It's wood. And you got, I don't remember three four pounds maybe did they serve it with air uh it's a hand pump 
It's a, a vacuum. If it's a cask, it's a hand pump, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wonder how long that beer will actually last. Well, they, the air exposure. The air goes in and it's pretty much, they tap it. A lot of times, the, the, a lot of the beer pubs, they'll have a tap day, Thursday. Yeah. And they hope it's gone by fr- Saturday, Friday, Saturday. Right. It won't last much longer. Right. Once the air gets in there, it will stale it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I, Funk. that's, a, that's a good point. I, when I was just, you know, buying kegs for for barbecues or whatever else you know going out to the lake and and hanging out with, with kegs friends what? uh sierra nevada usually is when i was drink, trying to get craft beer sometimes i get lagunitas whatever i could get um but it was before i was a brewer and um occasionally the beer would would warm overnight not not hot but you know we wouldn't ice it down again till we you know woke up from our stupor <laughs> and then we'd ice it down again but it would for invariably breakfast be much worse the next day and i always thought it was solely due to the temperature change but i've since realized it was because so the it, hand pump? it was the hand yeah, pump yeah. you know i didn't realize that you don't want to oxygenate your beer yeah, pressurize and, pressurize air yeah well, and, and that, that's how we were getting a great pour out of it for the first night it was always great cuz the oxygen's not going to change it yeah. in the first 4 hours but by the next day after pumping oxygen into the thing all night long <laughs> right well, it was partial, it was bad <laughs> partial pressures of gas too co2 comes out but it's the head space and you're gonna get yeah. oxygen forced back into it. Yeah. So it's part of the thing where like it where ignorance is bliss because now I now that I know, I can never get a keg and just have them hand me that silly hand pump thing. Yeah, like, I'm bring I'm like, where's my CO two setup? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because I want good beer and I don't want and I'm and I don't want to ruin good beer. No. Nope. I'll be thinking it's such a waste if I ruin it. My friend wanted a keg set up to take with him so we got him one of those ones that fit on the top of the keg mm-hmm. with the hand pump but i also set up a co2 thing so we just kind of disconnected the whole hand pump thing ah, and nice. so he and he i taught him how to use it and he would he kept the co2 on that one but all these big bubbles would come up and they just pump in that oh, thing they, they, and they're coming out they just think they're doing a great job on that keg <laughs> <laughs> and it was doing nothing right yeah. it didn't even pump it in right? no it didn't pump it in yeah, that's great. it was just dead but they just they'd all every one of them come up there and pump i've got a cure for the hand pump you just helped me out solve it. Yeah? Yeah. Sanky tap. Yeah. CO2 injector on the side and a little handheld faucet on the, on the top. You can rent that out. Yeah. Absolutely. Tap your keg, give it a shot of CO2, the beer will be good. You should. And when they don't drink out. it all, they bring it back. We get to drink it. Yeah. You should either rent them out or come up with a cost-efficient way to, to sell them for five bucks or something because yeah. they charge you five bucks to, to pick just, up the hand pump just anyway. Rent, yeah. You know what I mean? So if you can sell the CO2 setup for five or even eight bucks, you just convince them, you know, even if you get up to ten bucks, convince them that their beer is going to be better if they just buy the little setup. It's a disposable setup if you want it to be mm-hmm. and uh, put CO2. I'm telling you, I can't go back to that stupid hand pump because it really ruins the beer. And I didn't know that whole time. Everybody always said, oh, it's the temperature, it's the temperature. But it's, it wasn't just You're the just afraid to exercise. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to pump that thing. Um, this, carb- this question is about the carbonation stone. It says, okay. how long and, and at what pressure do I need to use? Stone has nothing to do with how much carbonation you get in there. It's to oxygenate your wort, right? No, 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 no. Oh, it's actually same a stone, carbonation. But it's the same purpose. stone okay, and ahead. the same principle. Okay. Small bubbles will diffuse into the solution faster. Okay. Okay, so it's a matter of breaking up the little bubbles more. So the same pressure, same temperature, it will still get you at your volumes of CO2. But it gets you there faster. It dissolves faster. Okay. So a lot of different ways to get them to dissolve faster. One is higher pressure. Yeah. The other one's a diffusion stone, and the other one is shaking it. Okay. You can do all three if you feel like it. Um, 
look if you there's a lot of charts out there. I'm looking at one right now. Yeah. Just if you've got a carbonation stone, it'll just get you there faster. So if you want two and a half uh, volumes of CO2 at whatever temperature you're at, look along the graph, look up, down, crisscross, applesauce, and it'll get you there. Okay. The carbonation stone's cool because it actually will get you there faster. In a so day, really. It'll get you there in a day because the yeah. bubbles are smaller. Really? So there's more surface area per bubble. Yeah. And molecules of CO2 are about the size of a molecule of water, so they're very small. Okay. And when the bubbles are much smaller, there's more contact area with, with the liquid. Okay. So well, it just goes in faster. Using the carbonation stone, you start out at a low pressure, four pounds. Yeah, you don't I mean, want to blow it off don't, the end. Exactly. You don't okay. want to blow off the end. Raise it up maybe one to two pounds per hour. And once you get up to about a 10 to 12 pound pressure, leave it there overnight. Where are you putting that stone? It's it's actually a keg lid built into your keg. Or okay. the old style, what I used to do is you, you have to reach your dirty hand inside your keg and you put it on, on the gas side too with, the, with uh, a piece of vinyl and it goes into the bottom. Okay. I sanitized my hand a few times. And then, yeah. But I just hated doing that. And then they, it, then they it came worked, up with though, the huh? It did. Yeah. And then they came up with the lid. And the, and it's actually another body connect on top of the lid. Okay. And you just hook it onto there. But and good thing what John said is don't crank it up to 13, 14 pounds and turn it on. Yeah. Because you probably blow that that stone right off, yeah. right off that uh, the tube, lid, vinyl lid tubing. Uh, so you can crank it up a little faster than that if you want. When the bubbles stop, when you stop hearing it hiss, crank it up some more. Okay. It just has to equalize. Okay. You don't want to put 12 pounds into that that. Vinyl tubing, and then you got that thing rattling around the bottom of your keg. Okay, ask me how I know. <laughs> You've done it. Huh? Oh yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about this volumes of carbon dioxide okay. chart here. Uh, cool. You have a couple things written down that uh, it looks like soda is generally at three point five. What's what's the well, volumes what's the of measurement? C- volumes of CO two are just a, it's a measure of how much CO two is dissolved in the liquid. You don't really got to know where it comes from or what it is. You just kind of know the range of what it is. And a 2.0 to 3.0 is a good beer range. And this is in PSI? No, this is in volumes of CO2. So is that a parts per million type of thing? It's volumes of CO2. I think it's uh, milliliters per liter. Okay. Something like that. It doesn't matter. Okay. Don't got to know that. Gotcha. Just got to know the chart. Okay. Uh, you got to know where your beer style falls in. All right. Uh, standard pale ale is about 2.5. Okay. And that's a good fizziness. High end is going to be your wheat beers and your Belgian beers are going to be 3.0, maybe a little above. Um, your stouts, let's not talk about stout, that's nitrogen. So let's just talk, let's talk about, uh, cast condition kind of, uh, English ale. Okay. That's going to be around a 2.0. Okay. You're going to have CO2 in, in the solution just from your fermenter. It's right. going to be 1.5 or so, but it's going to be there. Okay. Uh, you can measure it. It just that much dissolves under normal atmospheric pressures. Okay. So uh, just decide where your style, and you can look it up what your style is. But generally, s- soda that you're going to have, you know, Pepsi and stuff is about three and a half. That's very how fizzy they're very carbonated. Yeah. yeah. A real ale, I'm going to go with about 2.0 to 1.8. Something okay. like that. You give it less than that, and it tastes like you're just drinking water. Yeah. It's like not any fizziness there. Okay. Sierra Nevada, you're going to look at a 2.5, something like that. Okay. And you can kind of go off of that. Okay. Those are just general beer styles. Gotcha. And that'll give you kind of some people. And then you go off of what you like. Yeah. Uh, very important. We were talking about, you know, Morgan. 
he likes his beers undercarbonated. Yeah, and I would argue with him and be like, your beer's right. uncarbonated. But he's like, no, I meant to do it. And I'm like, but no, it's his beer, and that's what he likes. Yeah. Me, I like to overcarbonate. Yeah. I like to have a little more sparkly on my tongue. I don't yeah. like things laying on my tongue. Yeah. So. I'm, the, I'm the same way. Hmm. And so I, and you can go overboard, and then it tastes like soda pop. Yeah. And you don't want to do that either. Yeah. Right. And you don't want a bunch of gas either. You well, know what I'm yeah. saying? Well, you want to drink a lot. What's so. the gas? Gas yeah. is one thing, and, but the carbonic acid that it is in the solution is going to have kind of a bitter flavor to it. Yeah. And that's what I was talking about, about uh, possibly that's offsetting point, some sweet. Especially like American ales. Right. That huge flavor effect. Yeah, it does have, a, fl- it has a flavor effect. So it not has a mouthfeel, it also has a flavor effect on it. Mm-hmm. All right, so this particular volumes of carbon dioxide chart you, looks like you can find at homebrew.com. Okay. Uh, and there, at, well, at least it says it at right. the bottom. Well, let's look at your, what's your kegerator at? What's the temperature gauge say on there, if you had one? 42? 42. So let's yeah. look at 42 temperature. All right, I'm looking at And it. you're going to be, you want to have about, two, uh, let's say two and a half. So we got 2.56. Yeah, I see. That, yeah. That's a good good round number for a, a pale ale. Maybe a two six five. You can go either one. That's going to be between fourteen and fifteen pounds per square inch. At the but top. it doesn't tell you how long to do that for. No, all the all the log doesn't matter it, does until it? it's done. It doesn't, and, it, and it won't go over. If I left it on there for a month, it would never it would go stay, over. No, okay. it, it'll get up to a point and it reach equilibrium. Okay, makes and sense. And it will stay. I got you. The length thing you can change with a carbonation stone, shaking it. Or you can overpressure it for a while, but okay. don't leave it at that. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Good. So the, that's an easy, it's one an easy chart to use. It's an easy chart to use. And if you got ProMash, you can plug it in there and it'll tell you exactly yeah. what to put it at. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you tell them what, what volumes of CO2 you want and what temperature you're at, and it'll tell you what, how much pressure to put it at. Okay. Th- there's a discrepancy, though, I think. Because CO2 in a refrigerator in a cool environment versus outside... How do you think this chart would actually? It's whatever the temperature of the liquid is. Yeah, so you got to go so, by both. No, the temperature of CO two doesn't really matter. But your regulator reading is going to creep up in a cold environment over time. And Down. It, well, it, it goes the, the, up the tank pressure, but the tank. But your regulator able. reading goes up. But the, over the, like a week's period, it goes up a few pounds. But if you're outside, it shouldn't. <laughs> I'm not following you. Well, I'm not either. Well. Chris Graham was talking about this. It, gas in a in a tank right. in a cold environment it condenses, I guess. It, well, it, it, CO two is a liquid, a liquid, liquid and gas mixture in the tank. Right. And but it can give you it can give you a false reading because of that. Only in the tank pressure. Only, in t- but you're reading the tank pressure. I'm not reading. The, no, I'm reading. I'm reading the 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 keg pressure or the line pressure. There's two dials. The out of your the, the, no, the, that shouldn't change. Okay. Okay. And if it does, crank it back up to where it should be. Because you want to have that, whatever, 14 to 15, if that's what you're doing, into the car and corny. Okay. Because I've had beer read like 12, 14 pounds of pressure, but I set it at 8 or uh, 10. Okay. And it'll creep up after a week. I'm like, what's going on? But it's still pouring the same. Yeah. So there's, be aware of that, I guess. Uh, and you're check, reading. Check your temperature. Yeah. If the temperature went up, then your pressure's going to go up. Okay. So you, your refrigerator might be like hurting because it's hot out, yeah, 40, and then your temperature goes up, and then the pressure equilibrium will go up. Okay. All right, let's switch to topic for there. a second. I'm gonna I'm gonna give this to you, John, uh, because I think you are the uh, somewhat of an expert on this, and then uh, call it a show. Okay. Uh, 
Somebody wants any tips for carbonation levels for filling bottles with a counter filler pressure fill, a counter pressure bottle filler. I personally, yep. I carbonate my beer to where I think is a good flavor, a good taste. Okay. If I'm happy with how it pours out of my tap on my kegerator, mm-hmm. that's when I bottle it. Okay. But I'll give a beer anywhere from two to three months of aging before I even bottle it. Okay. Just because it's aged, a lot of dropout is cleared. And I've got a proper carbonation level in there, and then I'm set. And then, are you losing with your counter pressure filler? Are you losing any carbonation yes, level? Uh, a little, if you're a little doing bit. It right. You get bottle shock, mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, you're gonna. I try to flush the bottle out with CO2 beforehand, okay. and then as I'm going into it, with my counter pressure bottle filler, I will flush out with CO2, start pouring beer immediately, yeah, and then have that filled up. Yeah. Always check. Taste your keg before you bottle. Yeah, because okay. uh, it could be funky. <laughs> I, I had a no. I, I had a Belgian that two weeks before I'm going to bottle it, mm-hmm. and it was probably about three volumes. And cool, let's go for it. Okay. I bottled about half a case, and I just said, oh, "Let's taste this," and then it was flat. Well, th- that's a good point because when you start out with a full keg of five gallons of beer, you I start out be careful because you can take a beer bath. Start out at four to, <laughs> yeah. six, four to six pounds of pressure. Sweet. Fill that first bottle up. Who cares? if, you, As long as you get it filled and it didn't blow up on you, you're set. But, you know, 12 beers, 16 beers later, you're going to yeah. bump up your pressure anywhere from 15 to and 20 di- pounds. Di- different okay. beers behave differently. I have some, like a golden ale I can get over to the capper, no big deal. Yeah. And I've got a pail that just, as soon as I pull that thing out of there, I can't get it on there. It's foaming all over the place. Really? And they just okay. they get funky. Uh, Jamil came up. I think I got it from you, mm-hmm. John. The Jamil says, I used to get the, everything cold, bottles cold. It's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Uh, Jamil said, well, just crank up the pressure on everything yeah. and then yeah. bottle in a warm bottle. Okay. And crank so I crank it up to about 20, 25 yeah. and bottle <laughs> then. I get no foaming. Yeah. Okay. The beer is really cold. And the bottle will get cold too. My hand does too. Right. But, yeah. uh, yeah. but I'd say start, start low, but then creep it up after f- right. like three or four bottles. Okay. You know. Fair enough. Uh, okay. How about a nitrogen CO2 question? Slash okay. CO2. Guys, um, got any info about that? You want me to give it to you? Your stout was awesome. Did okay. Um, yeah. In okay. carbonating a stout with a nitrogen CO2 mix, what percentage of CO2 to nitrogen do you use? And, um, and then should you carbonate with 100% CO2 and then save it with nitrogen instead? You can, but you're making it difficult. Okay. Uh, um, generally, there's a beer gas mix you can get. It's nitrogen is about 30 per, uh, 70% and CO2 about 30%. Okay. What you need to do is you need to have a low carbonated beer All right. at about two volumes. And then you got to run it through a, a stout faucet. Stout faucet is going to take about 30 pounds of pressure to push it through. Hmm. Well, if you push through, push your keg with 30 pounds of pressure of CO2, you're going to have an overcarbonated keg in a day and a half. Mm-hmm. So that's why they do the partial, partial pressure with the CO2 and nitrogen mix. Okay. For a couple of different reasons. You can crank up the pressure, but only 30% of that CO2 is going to go into solution. So if you crank it up to 30 pounds, mm-hmm. one third of that it's only CO2, you're going to get only a third of that is CO2. Okay. Okay. Then, but you have all the pressure behind it to get it through the faucet because it's got to go through that little restrictor plate and it, and it wants to break out all of that solution. Gotcha. Nitrogen doesn't dissolve so good in solution, but it does to a point. And one of the reasons they do use it is because nitrogen bubbles are very stable hmm. in the air. 
CO2 is not much CO2 in the atmosphere. So the little bubbles want to pop because they want to go dilute the atmosphere. But most of our atmosphere is nitrogen. So when you have a nitrogen bubble, it hangs around. That's why that lacy, thick, foamy head sticks around so long. Gotcha. It's happy. It's happy <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's happy. you know, it doesn't want to dilute the, the atmosphere, but it's already 70%. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so 70, 30. Is it? That, that's what you just so go when you, it's an air gas mix. That's what you get with the, with the it's called a beer mix, I right. think. Right. And you just tell them when you fill it, and they'll fill it to the and it's it's just whatever the mix is. You don't get to pick. Oh, it's all in one tank. It's all in one tank, and ah. you don't get to mix that. Okay. And then and that's what it is. And you're going to need about whatever volumes of CO2. Let's say I want a 2.0 beer at. 30, yeah, let's say 40 degrees. Okay. Then we go up to about 8 pounds. Okay. Well, it's only 8 pounds of CO2, but that's one-third, so you're going to need about 32 pounds of pressure. Okay. Wow. And, but you, the nitrogen doesn't dissolve in there at the same as the CO2 does, but you need the pressure behind it to get it through that stout faucet. Okay. But if you're going to pour it through a regular, a regular. faucet, it's going to come out like a gangbuster. Yeah. Right. It's going to be awful. So you in, invest into the stout faucet. Okay. It's a good thing. Okay. Fair enough. I want to wrap it up, guys. Let's do it. I think we uh, covered carbonation and, and answered the Beat questions. Beat it to death. Yeah. yeah. Hey. One other thing I can like to plug is when you're you. counter... I, I love you, too. <laughs> when, we're, uh, when you counter pressure bottle fill and, and you're going from a keg, when you fill like a case worth of beer, yeah. you're going to need more pressure and head pressure to serve it. Okay. So you got to compensate, too, as you're actually counter pressure bottle filling. Okay. So your actual pressure that you're serving out will go up. As you're down to maybe the last gallon or two of beer. Okay. So. All right. He is the counterfill, counter I've pressure seen him bottle do it. filler master. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah. I got to get one of those little gadgets from you too. I think I did like 500 beers. Really? Sure. For competition yeah. and stuff. Nice. It's fun. All right. Drink one bottle one. <laughs> yeah. Here's what we're going to do. We Walk are going to wrap it up as far as the live show, but what we've got ready for you now is a farmhouse ales lecture coming up. Um, it's it's taken from the National Homebrew Competition this year. Johnny was there. It's Phil Markowski, who's the brewmaster at Southampton Public House in Southampton, New York. And uh, he's great with Belgian strong ales and uh, other farmhouse ales. And it's just a, it's an hour-long lecture. If you're not going to uh, stay awake for the whole thing, it's cool. I'll probably I'm going to replay the whole show starting um, tomorrow night, and um, that way you'll be able to catch it again. So, but we're going to play that right now. I'm going to do our our good old outro song, and then and then play the play Yeehaw. the lecture after that. Daniela, what's happening over there? You got uh, some things to say? Put, put get the microphone there. I want to help a buddy out now. Yeah. Oz Brewer has been with us all the show along. It's yeah. midday in Australia now, and his wife Diane. Diane, this message is for you. Please do me a favor and take your awesome husband out to the Belgian Beer Cafe now, as it's only midday in Australia. Oh, perfect. Have a good day. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It was a great show. Thank you. Thank you, Daniela, for working the chat room. Go to the Belgian Beer Festival you, with him. I mean. Uh, that's what we talked about anyway, right? Yeah. So go have some Belgians. They're only like 9% alcohol. <laughs> yeah, you, you won't have to, you, if you take them there, you won't have to deal with him for the rest of the night because he's going to pass out. When he gets home. Uh, unless that's a bad thing, then he's really good at taking his alcohol and he'll be a happier person when he gets home. Whichever one works for you, Oz, uh, send that to her. Okay. 
Uh, thanks, Daniela. That was cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, join us in the chat room again next week. Uh, we always appreciate your Marin input. Brewing Company. Um, I want to uh, extend a thank you to Crotchrot, uh, a good friend of the show. The archive that we replayed for the last couple days, it was playing, uh, I think, Friday and Saturday, uh, was brought to you by Crotchrot himself because uh, our archiver didn't work because I didn't push the archive button. And uh, <laughs> luckily, uh, Crotchrot came through like five minutes after the show. He's right there with our, with our archive for us. So thanks, dude. We, we always appreciate your help. Yes, and, thank you very uh, much. The, cool. other, the other brewers, thank you because you got it. If you like the show and you got friends that like beer and talking about beer and drinking beer, beer tell them about it because i can tell you right now the only way we're sticking around is if people are into it and right now people are very into it we just need to keep it going and uh that will help us help you um the the more support we get the more information we can bring you the more brewers the more uh, manufacturers we're gonna we're gonna start working on white labs people getting in here and and other media sources like uh, brew your own we're gonna talk to all sorts of people to beer to keep trying to get them in here we're gonna go to festivals i'm going to the oregon brew festival Festival. I'm going to leave uh, Friday morning. I'll be coming back uh, probably just before showtime, and I'm going to take a bunch of interviews while I'm up there. I'm going to try to talk to the organizers of the festival and a, and a bunch of breweries. I mean, there are so many breweries there that I'm going to have access to, and I'm just going to I'm going to bring a microphone and a, and a recorder and try to get a bunch of just good stuff for you guys and interviews to post up and and play on the show. So, like I said, the, we can really bring more of that to you. The more you you, you tell people about us, so um, it, it helps. Us help you that's all but but so far everybody's been great and uh we've had a great response and we really appreciate it here at the brewing network mm-hmm. it's we've been doing it for almost eighth week kind of got a little family started yeah, here yeah it's like two months now and and uh, you know we got some regulars who, who just help us out and are very cool and we get new people every week we got some new callers today that was great and uh we're just really happy about it. I, I am uh, personally thanking everybody out there, and I think that's awesome. So uh, we're going to keep it up. Uh, you know, you guys keep it up too. Should we give them a heads up for next month or uh, for what's coming? Yeah. We got uh, we got Vinny from Russian River coming in. Right, okay. Johnny talked to him for us, and and he's coming in. We got Marin Brewing Company coming in next week. Um, the week after that's Colin from Downtown Joe's. Okay, oh, did you finally commit? Yep. Cool. The week after that's Vinny from Russian River. Yeah. And the week after that's Matt from Firestone. Right. And, and the week after that is potentially Triple Rock right. uh, Brewery, which okay. is in Berkeley here in California. Bur- so, uh, our and whole. The week after that. What do you got? Moonlight. Moonlight Brian after Moonlight that. Brewing Company. Wow. So we got a great schedule for the next month or so. Moonlight, and we're just going to keep booking them and booking them and booking them. So. I think, uh, Charlie Papazian in October. October? Yeah. Phone, I'm sure. And we're going to go live from Prague on the 18th of September. Okay. Yeah. Prague. Yeah, we got a guy who's out there going to Prague. I thought we were going. You're, you're taking us to Prague. Yeah. Oh, you right. are, Doctor Scott. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going live, but uh, somebody's calling us live, and, calling and we'll bring live. it to you guys. Exactly. So that'll be cool. A little international beer stuff for everybody. Yeah. I'm sure, all the people outside of America get sick of us talking about just American brewers all the time. So that'll be cool to get a Prague guy. Yeah, be nice. <laughs> all right, what's cool. it call him? Prague guy. Prague guy. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, Daniela's like just shaking her head at my ignorance right now. That's okay. I enjoy that. All right. So next week, Marin Brewing Company. Uh, I'm going to play you the Pale Ale song, of course, right now because everybody loves it. I love it in particular. Home Brew is a friend of mine. Pale Ale's a friend of mine. And then after that, stick around if you if you if you want some good information. It's Phil Markowski from Southampton Public House in Southampton, New York, talking about farmhouse ales. Thanks everybody. It was a great cool. show. 
and uh, we'll see you next week. Dr. Scott, Cheers. how much fun can you have before you go to hell, he wants to know. He <laughs> says that right on my shirt. It's right on his shirt. Uh, not enough. Never not enough. I'd I'm pushing not the enough. envelope. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we'll see you next week, everybody. Hey, I'm the director of Brewers Publications, the outfit that puts out little books, kind of like this one, uh, by uh, the gentleman who's about to give our uh, next talk. 
this book, Farmhouse Ales, is the first of a series of three books we're doing on uh, brewing Belgian beers. And um, this one uh, covers beers like uh, Cezanne and uh, Beer de Garde, Beer de Mars, and a few other uh, uh, more obscure ones. And uh, the gentleman who's going to speak to us today is, of course, Phil Markowski from the uh, Southampton Public House, Southampton, New York. Uh, Phil is a talented brewer. He's been a professional brewer since 1989 and has won many awards at the Great American Beer Festival, World Beer Cup, competitions like that. And uh, perhaps uh, one of of his proudest achievements was uh, being named the uh, winner in 2003 of the Russell Scher Award for Innovation in Brewing uh, by the... um, uh, what was then the Association of Brewers is now the Brewers Association. And that is an award which is not only given uh, just to a single professional brewer each year, but it is an award which is elected uh, by the previous recipients. And uh, so it is an election by your peers, an indication uh, amongst creative and innovative professional brewers that you are uh, doing that sort of groundbreaking work. And uh, a lot of the reason that Phil was recognized in that way is because of, of his work uh, in the brewing of Belgian ales. So, time for me to shut up and uh, let you listen to Phil. Let's have a warm welcome for Phil Martin. Thanks, Ray, and uh, thank all of you for, uh, for coming this morning. Um, the AHA is at, uh, I think it's still known, right? Is it? Uh, near and dear to my heart because uh, I started as, as a home brewer, as uh, a number of professional breweries, brewers have. Uh, recall I brewed my first batch in July of uh, 1984, so uh, almost 21 years. So my uh, brewing career is of legal drinking age any day now. So this is kind of wild to think of that because it doesn't seem like that long ago. But, uh, again, quickly, just to kind of recap my um, Brewing a career, I started a professional as a professional brewer in 1989 with the New England Brewing Company in, in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, left there in '94 to go up to '95, sorry, to go up to New Hampshire to uh, start a you know, short-lived uh, brewery called the Brewers Beer House in Merrimack, about a mile from the Anheuser-Busch plant. It was kind of interesting. Um, those guys used to come in for lunch all the time, so it was <laughs> both intimidating and interesting. Uh, and then in 1996, I uh, moved to Southampton, Long Island, New York, where, where I am today. So uh, 16 years and running is uh, my uh, professional brewing career. Anyway, uh, I was inspired to write this book on farmhouse sales for a number of reasons, but I felt that these styles, uh, these types of beer, really needed uh, someone to kind of uh, try and explain them a little better because they can be awfully confusing, and especially uh, confusing for those of us who are steeped in the um, style definitions that uh, are obviously important for understanding beer in general, and we'll talk more about that later. But I really wanted to give these beers kind of the... the uh, Time of day, so to speak, something that you know that that I thought that they were lacking because people tend to kind of dismiss them, I think, because they don't fall into this neat style guideline. So uh, con- confusing and daunting as that task was to try and explain these things, hopefully I, I can can do that by the end of this lecture. There'll be a better understanding of what these beers are all about. Uh, so what? Actually, not used to uh, laptops. I think I'm one of the few people left in. And the world who doesn't have a laptop. Um, so what is a farmhouse ale? Well, simply put, a farmhouse ale is an ale that's brewed on a farm. Um, actually, hundreds of years ago, there were much higher percentage of the population lived on farms than is the case today. And 
these people were self-sufficient. So they, they grew their own food, they raised their own food, and naturally brewed their own beer. Uh, those of, of you, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the story about Saisons uh, being produced to refresh farm workers or you know, perhaps you know, ales in general had that practical purpose. And no doubt there's tr- some truth to that. Um, but what is also true is that these beers were brewed for consumption on the farm, not for commercial sale. So they were very likely uh, very inconsistent and, uh, and varied quite a bit over the course of a, a year since they were not brewed for export. And you have to imagine on a farm there were different grains available and or even hops or spices available at different times of the year. So in all likelihood, these beers vary tremendously. And that legacy is alive today where there's, there are many, many interpretations of farmhouse sales, and particularly in the, the Cezanne family. And again, we're going to delve into that a little, little deeper. Here we go again with the wrong button. Sorry about that. There, there we go. Um, so farmhouse sales were produced for practical purposes. The refreshment, again, that story we're all familiar with, um, refreshing workers. Uh, I mean, people inherently knew that water could sometimes make them ill, so they, they realized that beer did not, and so beer was the soft drink of the day. Again, this is long before Coca-Cola, uh, you know, orange juice, you know, spring water, whatever. I mean, beer was the beverage of choice. And as a result, people drank quite a bit of beer per day. Uh, There's one story going back uh, to the Middle Ages claiming that the average person drank, or the average farm worker drank, five liters per day. So that's a lot of beer. And and that's naturally you would expect it would be a low alcohol beer, which I'm sure was true at the time. But that same idea of refreshment, of a beer brewed for refreshment, lives on today with the modern interpretations of Belgian Cezanne. And then also we can imagine, again, the days before there, was, there were sodas or even coffee or tea widely available, that these beers were probably brewed for energy. A beer with a high residual sugar content was a source of energy and therefore would tend to fuel a farm worker, let's say, uh, throughout the workday. Again, these would have to be low in alcohol in order to be used practically. But then again, that, that, that legacy of a higher residual sweetness lives on today with modern interpretations of French beer de garde. And one also has to imagine that in a, on a farm where there was lots and lots of work to do and people were working for their own survival, we have to imagine that, that brewing beer was really just another chore on the farm. These people, I'm guessing here, probably did not take the same level of passion that, that you people have to your brewing to their own brewing. Um, it was another chore. They had to brew to survive, to drink beer, to have something to drink. Uh, they weren't trying to nail a specific style guideline. They weren't trying to you know, reproduce a certain commercial example. So again, these, the, the quality of these beers probably varied tremendously as well as their, their flavor profiles throughout the year. And one also would imagine that if we could go back in time today and drink those beers, we would likely find them unpalatable or, or full of flaws, flaws by today's definition. And the same is true if we could bring back a farm brewer from 200 years ago and they and give them modern-day interpretations, they might find them kind of boring and sterile-tasting and, and lacking characters that they wouldn't even know the terms for, but they might be wondering, you know, where is the acetic acid character, where is the lactic acid character, where is the oxidation, where is the wood flavor, all of these things which must have been commonplace in that day, which have been, for the most part, phased out of modern 
uh, interpretations. So what we're talking about is a region that was once known as French Flanders, which which today encompasses the uh, French departments uh, du Nord and Pas-de-Calais primarily, as well as the uh, western end of Wallonia, particularly the province of Hainaut in southern and southwestern Belgium. That's where there seems to be a particular concentration of these particular breweries today. Um, this map, I know it's uh, it's not defined in modern terms, but this uh, term, this uh, region of Flanders Royale, actually extends up into the the southern Netherlands, what is today the southern Netherlands. And uh, we can't really see. Um, I believe the city of Torp is somewhere down in here. That's kind of like a hub in Hanoi. It's one of the larger cities in Hanoi, which is in, in this map in the Flanders Imperial region. Anyway, what is important is that there is a shared legacy of brewing, which what today encompasses two distinct countries, that of Belgium and uh, northern France. And in it's true of any brewery over time, uh, but I think also true of farmhouse breweries in particular, that the ones that survived into the modern day um, survived because they changed with the times. They changed to, to adapt to changing consumer tastes and also market, and we'll talk more about that later. Yet at the same time, these breweries show a balance, a certain respect for tradition and uh, you know, traditional methods that, that live on today. But some of the most successful breweries have learned to adapt to changing times. So we're going to talk about modern farmhouse producers. In helping to try and define these styles, uh, I, I saw myself as, a, as part reporter, uh, simply reporting what the breweries in France and Belgium are doing today and their commercial versions of Beer de Garde and Cezanne. And uh, I also threw in some of my own experiences and also you know, mainly the message I was trying to send in the book was to, to really take this information and come up with your own thing. And that's really what the spirit of this is. And that is how a lot of these breweries see this. It, it, they see it as producing something distinct rather than producing something exactly like the brewery down the road. So what we have done in order to help, or what I've done to try to um, better explain these, these this family of farmhouse sales is divided into two families, and that is uh, French Beer de Garde and Belgian Cezanne. And we're going to take a look at each one of them individually. Um, again, I touched on the fact that beer styles evolve over time, and this is true, really, of any beer style. You know, your, your pilsner is not your grandfather's pilsner, et cetera, et cetera, and that is also true of farmhouse sales. Uh, we know that historically geography has played a factor in beer style development. Way back in the day before water chemistry was understood, brewers tended to empirically discover which type of beer worked well within their water source. Examples are you know, Irish stouts, the Dublin, uh, the pale ales of, of Burton, Pilsners of Bohemia, etc. cetera. Uh, also, consumer tastes have driven beer style evolution, um, namely lager brewing. By far, most beer brewed in the world today is of the Pilsner is a Pilsner derivative or lager beer, and that has touched all aspects of, of beer styles, including farmhouse sales. And we'll talk again in more in depth about that as we go on. Technology is another factor. Uh, modern breweries uh, tend to use stainless steel, 
wood fermentation is a thing of the past. It's now considered a, a an experimental or specialty uh, approach. Once upon it was com- once upon a time it was commonplace, uh, and now we have brewers who, who no longer use copper vessels, which have more impact on a beer's flavor than a stainless steel vessel. Stainless steel is the norm. Technology also applies to knowledge and brewing science. We understand a lot more about brewing science than brewers did 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and we apply that in the modern day. So that influences the beer style evolution. And taxation may have uh, you know less impact than you might think. The best example probably is in the U.K., where, where beers are taxed based on original gravity. So they've tended to drop. Original gravities have tended to drop over the years. Whereas in the case of the, the farmhouse breweries, a lack of taxation has led to greater freedom, where in fact those versions of Saison uh, beer to guard have actually become elevated in alcohol content over the years in order to make them, quote, more special in, in the marketplace. So taxation is a factor as well. Um, style guidelines. We're all familiar with them, and uh, we know that they're very important, especially when you're first getting into understanding beer and appreciating beer. They're obviously important important for communicating to a consumer. You know, if you call it Joe's uh, Fantastic Ale, I mean, what does that really mean? Uh, if you call it Joe's Pale Ale or Joe's Brown Ale, people have an expectation of what to expect. And naturally, the same is true of, of farmhouse ales in general. Um, but style guidelines are important also, obviously, for beer competitions. Uh, there has to be some sort of benchmark to measure these these beers up against in order to you know see who stands out or is most accurate. But these are not necessarily gospel. It is one way. It is not the only way to define or understand beer. And in fact, it is. It does not fly in Belgium and France. They take an entirely different approach. They, their approach is more to associate a beer with a particular region than it is a, you know, preset definition. And, and above all, what they strive to do is produce something that is uniquely their own. And if you press them, they might say, okay, yeah, my beer to guard is kind of like uh, the guys down the road, but mine is different. That's the thing they emphasize. Mine has individuality. Mine's a little different. That is their approach. And so that's why we see such wide variation within these interpretations of, of French and Belgian farmhouse sales. Um, here again, that's what I said. They emphasize uniqueness and individu- individuality, and they do not, uh, they're not beholden to predetermined style guidelines, as, say, German brewers might be. There's lots of freedom, and they take full advantage of it, and that's their, that's their approach, and that's important to remember that. You're listening to the Brewing Network. So let's talk a bit about French specialty brewing. We all know the Belgians get gobs and gobs of uh, praise for their strong beer culture, and rightly so. But the French, we don't really hear much about their brewing culture. And uh, God knows the French get enough credit for all things uh, gastronomic. But the, the brewery, brewing history of the northern French is not really well publicized. Uh, they do have a long tradition of low-alcohol brewing, which, again, is consistent with the original intent of a farmhouse ale to be drinkable without being incapacitated. So lower alcohol beers, typically in the range of 3 to 4%, were, were long the case in France. Um, and they tended to be lager beers in more modern times. Again, they adapted with the times. Uh, they also have a history of malt-accented specialty brews. You see the labels uh, listed here. 
the Bach beer, which the Bach beer was typically, was commonly brewed in France, and they tended to be obviously malt accented, but unlike the German Bachs, they were lower in alcohol, again in the 3 to 4% alcohol range, uh, more like a typical table beer. And we see um, both these labels here were from Brasserie Recours, um, the brewers of uh, Troimont, which uh, they, they completely retooled themselves and reinvented themselves in the early 1980s as a specialty producer. Had a long history of producing lager beers, abandoned that when, when French specialty brewing kind of uh, was going through its renaissance, and uh, their case is not unique either. There's a number of breweries that we'll talk about who had done the same thing. So these breweries do change with consumer preferences, and some French brewers I spoke to have lamented the fact that they have a tendency to change perhaps too quickly with times and not uh, hold fast to their brewing technician, their brewing tra- uh, traditions, as have their Belgian brethren. So the French certainly have adapted to uh, changing consumer tastes, and some argue you know, a little bit too quickly. Now the history of beer de garde in general. A French specialty brewing, and it's hard to say how much of it is, is really history and how much of it is, is marketing. Now, we, we tend to like to believe, or some of us like to believe, that these things have not changed for, for generations, that these beers have been brewed the same way forever. And, you know, there are people who write about beer on more the romantic side of it, and they do it you know, far better than I could ever do it. That's why I took more of a kind of a reporter's approach, just saying this is what people tell me. Is how it is, and it, there were some surprises to me. I would have thought uh, the French beer de garde as we know it today is, has been around a little bit longer than the 25 or 30 years that it has been in its current incarnation. The, the story behind the uh, movement in, in French specialty beers started in the mid-1970s as Belgian brewers began to export more and more beer to France, where it was becoming quite popular. And if you know anything about the French, they're very... They have this need to kind of reinvent things and make them French. So they began to look for French versions, and really the only one that was around was uh, Jean-Lan Beer de Garde, which apparently had existed in its incarnation since the 1940s, late 1940s, in the tall bottle and you know, the classic uh, wire hood and corked finish, which is the standard look uh, for French Beer de Garde today. So that really only goes back to the mid-late 1970s. And uh, apparently college students discovered the um, Jean-Lan Beer de Garde and became wildly popular, you know, not unlike uh, in my day, Rolling Rock was when I was in college. And uh, I believe Pat, Pat, Pat's Blue Ribbon is going through, or, or maybe has already gone through its resurgence uh, as kind of a cult beer. So that was more or less what happened. And so as a result of their success, a lot of brewers followed suit. Uh, there were some other spin-offs, other French specialty uh, brews that are maybe lesser known but still kind of fall into the Beer de Garde umbrella. Um, Beer de Mars being one of them, uh, which, as the story goes, was an Alsatian tradition, and Alsace being a little bit south of, uh, of Nord and Pas de Calais, and actually bordering Germany, uh, that if you know anything about recent history, that area has changed hand many, many, many times over, and people in the, who live in those areas are bilingual and certain buildings look German and certain where the buildings look French, and uh, that the brewing in that part of France tends to be more of the German lager influence. Um, but it is said that this style of, of beer, beer de Mars, has come is a tradition in that area. Um, but the other story goes that on farms it was brewed in uh, late winter 
when uh, a new crop of ingredients were coming in, supposedly, and also when the brewers uh, had their cellars at their coolest. They had kind of learned empirically that when their cellars were cooler and they used fresh ingredients, they, they produced the best beer of the season. At least that's how the legend goes. And then there was, uh, I guess, economic pressure to get uh, money coming into the brewery because people weren't really drinking beer in the winter. So in March, they tended to come up with this campaign of, uh, you know, a spring beer or a March beer to kind of jumpstart the beer drinking season again. That's anyway how the legend goes. Whether it's really true or not, I don't know, but still it's interesting and it's inspirational at the same time. And then there's the beer de Noel, which uh, a lot of these breweries produce. And as is typical with Christmas ales or holiday ales in general, they tend to be darker, more malt-accented, and higher in alcohol content. A number of these breweries who produce standard beer de guards also produce a beer de Noel. And again, they all tend to fit that profile of uh, higher alcohol and more malt character. Um, let's talk a bit about beer de guard. Um, I've had the experience of entering beer de guards in competitions and get feedback. I know other people have gotten the same feedback that says doesn't taste very Belgian, which is 100% correct. It's not Belgian at all. In fact, it's French. So that is one mistake people make, assuming it's all kind of lumped into one one little category, and it, it's quite different from from Belgian saison or anything else Belgian for that matter. The characteristics that we see with beer de garde are a predominantly malty character. And again, that is, seems to be a French tradition. They tend to like their beers more malty as opposed to hoppy. There's some hops in there for accent, but typically they're, they're malty and they have uh, a subtle yet sophisticated malt makeup, generally. Uh, what also differentiates beer de garde from other styles of beer, they, they tend to be well attenuated. That is compared to a, a all malt brew of typical or similar original gravity, such as a Bach beer or a double Bach beer. Beardegards tend to have a leaner finish, a uh, lighter body than a Bach beer, for example, even though they're, they're of similar original gravity. They tend to fall in, at least in modern interpretations, in the range of 6 to 8% alcohol by volume. And then another classic uh, uh, trait of French Beardegard is the cork noir cage finish, which started with Jean-Lan Beardegard apparently in the late 1940s and then became the norm as these other breweries followed suit and, and produced their own versions of beer de garde. Look a little deeper into physical characteristics. Original gravities tend to be in the range of 15 to 18 Plato, with uh, final gravities in the range of 2 to 3 Plato, resulting in apparent degrees of attenuation in the range of 82 to 87%. Again, a little drier than, than your typical um, ball malt brew. But I should also add that some French... Beer de Garde brewers do use a little bit of sugar adjunct, but generally not more than, say, 5% by extract, just a subtle amount to kind of dry the, the flavor out. But by no means do all of them use it. Some do, some don't, just the way it is. Um, bitterness in the range of 15 to 25 IBUs. Again, interpretations vary, just as in any other beer style. Uh, hops generally there just as a, a background accent and, and never to the fore. Uh, resulting in alcohol contents of, I said earlier, 8%, but here it says 6 to 9% for some reason. I think there are some that do tend to produce something a little stronger. Again, it's probably an, an effort to stand out. So uh, brewing considerations for brewing your own version of French beer de garde. Naturally, you would tend to want to use French malt and hops. 
And uh, luckily, uh, French malt is available here in the U.S. Uh, the Franco-Belge line of malts is, uh, has quite a range of specialty malts, um, which can give you varying degrees of, of classic maltiness. It, uh, again, there's endless possibilities uh, with the range of malts available. French hops are a little bit tougher to, to find. Uh, classically, the French tend to use a, a magnum hop uh, for bittering, somewhere in the higher alpha range hops for bittering, uh, and then save the more expensive noble hops, the Strieselsfall being the most uh, common uh, Alsatian hop. They t- save that for, for uh, the finish. And uh, I, I can get Strieselsfall hops through Hop Union. I don't know if any of you have tried to get these hops and come up short, but I imagine there's some suppliers who, who will sell them to you. Uh, good substitutes would be saz, you know, something with a spicy uh, saz or halitau, herbal spicy uh, profile to them if you can't get the streusel's fall. Uh, the use of a neutral yeast strain. Now, this, again, is something that I think separates the French approach from the Belgian approach. Many of these breweries uh, use a neutral strain of yeast, and some, in fact, use lager strains at a higher temperature, say in the range of 60, 62 degrees Fahrenheit. And I, I believe that's a holdover to some of these breweries having a history of being a low alcohol lager producers and then switching gears in early 1980s to, to become a specialty beer producer. They probably opted to, to stick with the yeast that they knew intimately rather than change to something else. Um, so some of them do, in fact, use lager yeast for beer to guard production. Uh, and others use ale yeast at slightly elevated temperatures, but universally they tend to keep yeast profile relatively neutral, especially compared to the Belgians. And something else that is interesting is the, a lager-like conditioning regimen, which you might consider for your own version. Um, after primary fermentation, uh, many of these brewers adopt a typical classic lager beer uh, fermentation or uh, conditioning regimen, meaning four to six weeks at cool temperatures, cool meaning close to freezing, 32 to 35 Fahrenheit. And again, that is very typical of lager beer production. And I think many of the, the commercial French brewers today, if they've had formal schooling at all, it's likely that they've had schooling in lager beer brewing. And uh, you know whether they did that in Germany or France is maybe beside the point, but I think that was very typical of their education, so they apply it in their approach to producing these these beers. Now, another interesting note is that the term guard really is the French term for lager. And some even are apt to think that the term beer de guard really means beer that is lager or ale that is lager. And again, this conditioning gives it more of a cleaner, smoother character. And uh, that is, again, a typical attribute of French beer de guard. And then the other is the cork finish. Now, for, um, for home brewing, I know this is the, the typical cork and uh, wire hood finish is rather difficult to do, but you could always do a cork and then a crown over it. Get a small cork and, and you know, if you're going to bottle your, your home-brewed beer to guard, I think the cork does add a certain characteristic, a certain musty cellar character, uh, which again distinguishes beer to guard from other specialty beers. So some of the classic French producers, uh, Brasserie Duic, uh, located in the town of uh, Genlan, better known as Genlan, uh, produces Genlan Beer de Garde, which is the widely considered the granddaddy of them all, which goes back to the, the late 1940s and its present incarnation. And then again, the popularity in the late 1970s that spawned a bunch of other uh, 
higher alcohol French versions of Beer de Garde. Uh, Brasserie Tellier is another old one. They claim to be the oldest brewery in France. And uh, they have produced something called Beer de Garde for a very long period of time. However, it appears that until the late 1970s, it was a lower alcohol version, somewhere in the range of 3 to 4%. And then once Genlon had its success, um, Brasserie Tellier revamped its flagship called uh, La Bavazienne, which is available here in the States, um, to a more typical 6 to 8% alcohol range. I believe it's 15.5 Plato original gravity these days. Um, Brasserie Castellane produces the Chiti line of, of specialty brews. Again, this brewery was known for low alcohol lager production and then completely reinvented themselves in the 1980s to produce the, now is the Chiti range of um, Beer de Guards. They produce one as blonde, amber, and brown, which no doubt confuses uh, people in terms of using that, that Beer de Guard label. Um, and then another is uh, Brasserie La Chulette. Once again, a brewery that produced low alcohol lagers that switched gears in the 1980s to produce specialty beers. And they stand out as one of the few who does bottle conditioning. And also they have, seem to have the most expressive yeast strain of any of the other uh, French specialty brewers. And their products are also available here in the States, uh, somewhat sparingly, but they are exported. You are tuned in to the Brewing Network and listening to a recorded lecture given by award-winning brewer Phil Markowski, brewmaster at Southampton Public House. It was given at the National Homebrew Competition in Baltimore this year, and it's about Belgian strong ales and his book Farmhouse Ales. So we'll get you right back to it. Uh, we'll just take a quick look at Brasserie Tellier. Uh, this is a classic family-owned farm brewery. It's been in the same family for, for generations. Um, it's not located in a farm area, so to speak. It's in a small town called Bavay. And uh, I drove right past the place, and in a quarter of my eye, I saw the, the pallets of uh, bottles and uh, cases up over the stone wall. Otherwise, I would have not guessed there was a brewery there. But the brewery, uh, the family lives in the front of the house. The front of the building here is where the family lives, and then the attached buildings of the brewery. Really interesting and uh, really traditional. Uh, they claim to have been brewing since uh, within this family since the turn of the century, of the last century, that is. Um, so, interesting case. Um, as I say, they produced a, a beer de garde, or a product they called beer de garde, for a very long period of time. However, in the past uh, 25, 30 years, it is, has been elevated in terms of alcohol content and original gravity. And the present-day flagship, La Bovazienne, is available here in the States from time to time, and to me it's a very classic example. Uh, you can see their brew house here has kind of an interesting layout. Um, rather than have stacks going all the way up to the roof, they have these kind of conical uh, hoods that, that capture the steam. And then apparently they get a very, very vigorous boil there, and they claim to use only Pilsner malt, but the resulting product is you know, it's quite dark uh, for, for being made with only Pilsner malt. Uh, they get a really tremendous uh, direct fire boil and uh, the caramelization that, that they experience is quite unique. And this interesting um, brew house layout here is, is said to, again, it's another story, you wonder if it's true or not, but it does kind of make sense that between the world wars, um, the brewers who, and there were many brewers who during World War I had, had their breweries uh, stripped by the German soldiers to make munitions, and they had kind of learned from that, um, and came out with this kind of layout here. I saw this in a couple of other breweries where this is located in a hayloft, and apparently 
um, they had the option during World War II of uh, covering up the the brewery with hay, so the Germans wouldn't know that there was uh, you know equipment to be scrapped or made into munitions, and it and it saved a couple of these breweries apparently. If that's you know if that's really true, very interesting story though. Um, here are the teliers. That is Armand uh, on the right. He is the patriarch of the brewery. He became um, de facto brewmaster at age 15 when his uncle was imprisoned uh, during World War II. And he is retired from the brewery but is still active in the sales and has turned over the brewing duties to his son, uh, Michel, who is the current brewmaster. I guess he's in his early 30s, early mid-30s. And the family, again, lives right there. Roll out of bed and roll right into the brewery in the morning if they choose. So. And it's it's a um, it's a small brewery that doing roughly two thousand barrels U.S. barrels per year. So very small. And again, above Azien, the flagship is available here in the states from time to time. Um, now let's talk about the Cezanne family, which um, some might argue is more interesting and uh, more characterful than Beer de Guard, but. And I feel Beardegard is, is uh, interesting in its own subtle way. Uh, the Cezanne family, again, uh, in these day, in the modern days, uh, many of the breweries that have survived and exist today are in the western uh, section of Pinot Province in, in the southwest along the French border. Uh, there's also kind of another legend about a, a similar brew called Grisette, um, which, as the, the legend goes, this was a... a beer similar to Cezanne that was produced to refresh miners as the economy in the area changed from an agricultural to a, a mining economy um, apparently there was this either the special brew produced or something that was very similar to Cezanne produced and simply relabeled uh, to appeal to that generation of worker um, whether that's really true or not uh, I don't know but uh, again an interesting story it, uh, there's one version of Grisette still produced today, and I haven't had it, but I'm told it's, uh, you know, it's produced by a larger brewery and tends to be a, you know, a little bit nondescript. doesn't mean that there's not room for new and exciting interpretations down the road. So, again, an interesting story. Grisette, uh, loosely defined as, say, a lower alcohol version of Cezanne. So let's talk about what distinguishes Cezanne as its own style family. Um, what I find is that there's a notably complex, uh, fruity, spicy character, which can be entirely yeast-driven or it can be a combination of yeast and ingredients added, be they spices or fruits. I mean, basically anything goes, as you as you may already know, um, with some commercial versions of Cezanne. And just a note on that, I mean, some people tend to think that in order to be Cezanne, it has to have a, a spices added which is not how the Belgians approach it. There, there are many that, uh, or a number that take pride in the fact that they don't use spices at all, which is uh, not to say that there's not a use for them. Um, it's a way to really distinguish your beer from someone else's by adding particular spices, botanicals, fruits, whatever. And there's a number of breweries that, that do that with, with lots of freedom, which makes it kind of interesting. Um, something else that really distinguishes Saison, in my mind, is that they are extraordinarily well attenuated. Some are very, very dry. And again, they have higher degrees of apparent attenuation than, than other beer styles typically have, with perhaps the exception of a, a, an adjunct lager or something that's got a, a good degree of adjunct added to it. Um, also, Saisons, in my mind, tend to 
stand out from other Belgian brews in that they have more of a hop character. And again, Saison Dupont is a good example of that. Uh, Belgian specialty ales in general, at least historically, have not had hops to the fore as uh, as the Saisons have, perhaps. There are some versions of you know, newer Belgian brewers, uh, the Dole and uh, Doranka come to mind as those who are starting to use a lot more hops. But traditionally, hops were, were very much in the background with Belgian specialty ales. And again, that is one characteristic, I think, that makes Saison stand out from others. And then uh, the fact that bottle condition, which is certainly not unusual in Belgium, but that continued interaction between the yeast and the brew as it ages does uh, help the flavor evolve and, and often makes something more distinctive over time. So look, we'll look at some typical physical parameters of saisons. And this data was uh, compiled from, from measuring a number of commercially available versions of Belgian saison. Uh, typical original gravities ranged uh, from 12 to 14 and a half Plato, uh, with more tending toward the 12 to 13 range than the higher end of the spectrum. Uh, final gravities in the range of 0.5 to 1.6 degrees Plato, which result in apparent attenuation of 89 to 96 percent. Again, extraordinarily high degrees of attenuation. And uh, bitterness in the range of 15 to 32 IBUs and alcohol by volume in the range of 4 to 7%. And uh, just in case you're wondering which commercial versions on the final gravity, I think that's the most interesting. The, the commercial brew that came in at 0.5 degrees uh, final gravity, apparent final gravity, was Saison uh, de Potra from uh, Brasserie Blogy, which you can get here in the States, again, um, sparingly. It's brought in by Shelton Brothers, and uh, I was consistent about about bringing beer in all the time. It's sort of when they feel like it. Yes, a potra is the French word for spelt. Um, then at the higher range, you know, relatively speaking, at 1.6 degrees Plato, that was Saison Sili, which is one of the darker, uh, seemingly more full-bodied interpretations and one of the older interpretations out there. Um, I was quite surprised, actually, to measure it at that, high, that low. I thought it would be higher... Uh, because it just seems fuller, but 1.6 degrees. So that's a that's a, an attenuation of about 89%, so that's quite high. And then on the bitterness range at the low end, 15 IBUs, that was also Saison uh, Sili, and the high range, as you might expect, that's uh, Brasserie DuPont's Saison uh, DuPont at 32 IBUs. So brewing considerations for brewing your own version of Belgian Saison. The use of a highly expressive yeast strain which there are a number of them out there, but the, you know, the no-brainer is Saison uh, DuPont. Very unique yeast. Uh, to devote some coverage in the book on it. Uh, it's very interesting yeast. Continues to frustrate me and other brewers I know who you know, try to produce these beers commercially and are under pressure to you know, kind of turn them over and free up the tank, and uh, they're, they're just very frustrating. I'm still, still working on figuring this yeast out, which I... It's still it's part of the fun, but nevertheless frustrating at times. Um, again, the use of spices are optional. Um, I think the word here is moderation. Sometimes people tend to go a little bit heavy on the spices, I think. And, you know, subtlety, uh, moderation, I think, are, are nicer um, characteristics than being whacked over the head with uh, coriander or something. Um, a warm conditioning period. <coughs> Again, that's kind of a, a different approach uh, with saisons is, uh, or a lot of Belgian beers is a warmer conditioning period where the, the brew after it's you know 
primary fermentation, or at least the visual side of primary fermentation is done, a continued uh, warm aging with uh, either the same yeast strain or whatever else is in this particular strain. Some of these Saison yeasts are claimed to be multi-culture organisms, so by letting the ethanol-producing yeast kind of settle out, you reduce the population and give something else a chance to continue working. Um, that's another aspect of uh, brewing your own version of Belgian Saison. The cork finish, again, not so easy uh, to get that classic wire hood look, but uh, you could always put a cork in the, your bottle and put a conventional crown over that uh, for flavor. And bottle conditioning, it basically goes without saying that's the universal trait with Belgian Saisons that they are bottle conditioned. And then there's something I call brewing with abandon, which we'll uh, talk about here. Um, as mentioned in the book, there's, there, there's certain comfort zones that, that all of us as brewers have found ourselves in. And then trying to produce something more authentic, particularly authentic Saison, can kind of force us to step out of that zone. And uh, by, by that I mean, in some cases, pushing your own personal limits of fermentation temperature. I think it's, it's a legacy of early homebrewing texts text being all British, that some people have this kind of line that they don't cross of 68, 70 degrees Fahrenheit as a, as a temperature limit that they're comfortable with in fermentation. And indeed, um, at DuPont, they ferment quite high uh, in the range of basically blood-warm temperatures in the 90s uh, is their fermentation. And that approach is typical, I've learned, with uh, red wine makers. Um, it's a different mindset. The mindset is let's get this thing fermented, not let's get this flavor profile or that flavor profile. It's let's get this thing fermented and get it out of the tank to another tank or a barrel or whatever the case may be. Um, do you need to ferment that high with DuPont yeast? I, I don't think you really need to, but it helps uh, just reduce the time that you're, you're waiting for it to finish. If anyone's used it, and experience a stuck fermentation when you're not alone because that's, uh, that's how that yeast tends to be. Um, allowing for warm aging and multiple strain cultures to work to their potential. A lot of people see the, the visible signs of fermentation um, cease and say, okay, it's done, now I'm going to put it in the bottle or refrigerate it, cool it down, whatever. But in this case, uh, patients can pay off and giving other organisms time to work or even the same yeast strain, which may in fact, uh, at the latter end of fermentation, when there's maltotriose, there may tend to just have a very difficult time breaking down those sugars. It needs time and it needs warmth to be able to do that. And you need to wait sometimes four to six weeks for, for the fermentation to, to cease. And with that said, it shouldn't be that you're leaving your uh, brew on a big pile of sediment, sedimented yeast. You do want to rack it off um, to reduce the, the amount of yeast you're sitting on, but still there's likely going to be something in suspension that's going to continue working and slowly settle out, and patients will pay off. You're going to get more enhanced flavor development, in my experience, and, uh, you know, again, it's stepping outside of the usual approach. And then there's accepting low terminal gravity readings. If any of you make a habit of reading your, your terminal gravities, uh, you may, again, have a certain comfort zone, and it's, it's a different story here. As you saw from the, the measured final gravities, it can be extraordinarily low. So that's uh, 
something that again you need to get comfortable with if if uh, if you have a problem with that. Uh, so there we go. Do you dare? This is the temperature gauge on a, a primary fermentation tank at Brasserie Dupont. It's just over 30 degrees Celsius, which is 86, and I'm told they, they often get up to 35, which again is you know approaching blood warm. Sounds shocking at first, but you know really why not? It's it, again it's it's stepping outside of a comfort zone. You know why not? It, the beer doesn't seem to, to suffer for it. And it's their their approach is they need to get that tank out of its um, or that brew out of the tank so they can brew more. And what's curious about Dupont is they tend to do their warm aging in the bottle because it's more practical for their setup. They'll age for six to eight weeks in the bottle at roughly 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Very unusual, but that's how they they don't have the fermentation tank capacity to do it in the tank, so they choose to do it in the bottle. You're listening to the Brewing Network. So let's talk about Brasserie Dupont. Um, Arguably the classic example, certainly one of the more available examples, and in my own opinion, you know, one of the more pleasant examples to drink. I think it's it's a great beer. It's a classic, and yes, it has evolved over time. Um, The current brewmaster uh, Olivier has admits that he has changed things subtly. Uh, gravity is up a little higher than traditional Saison might be. And uh, he used to dry hop it. Now he doesn't dry hop it anymore. So I mean, these things are all real-life situations. Belgian brewers, as traditional as they might be, change with the times, and they do change things. And um, this is a brewery, I think, that's successful because they do combine modern approaches with traditional approaches. They don't filter their beer. They run it through a centrifuge. That's definitely a modern approach yet they they have the patience to bottle condition the beer for six to eight weeks because they feel that's necessary for the proper flavor development and that's not an easy thing to do nor is it an inexpensive thing to do um brasserie dupont is a very unique and distinctive yeast strain again it's covered in the book uh, some of the details of it um i mentioned that uh Les Perkins of, of uh, Y East Labs has has made independent. He and other people made independent uh, observations that it smells quite a bit like a red wine yeast, and in fact, it seems to exhibit some of the characteristics of red wheat, red wine yeast, as I understand it. That is a, a a need or even tolerance of very high fermentation temperature, and also a kind of deficiency of uh, free amino acids or free amino nitrogen, which. Um, you know, whether or not this is really a red wine yeast strain or not is uh, an interesting thought, but it is a very distinctive yeast, and if you use it uh, and show patience with it, you'll get some nice results. Uh, great complexity of tropical fruit and spice characters that really I've never gotten from any other yeast. Uh, and again, they fermented this range of 30 to 35 degrees. So, shocking, but why? You know? And they, they are modern where it counts. They have a modern packaging line and a modern, very modern lab, which they would not let me near. So they have some secrets. They're very free with information otherwise, but they would not let me near their lab. Um, so I just had to throw in for the fun of it. Uh, we read about certain things, and we get all uptight about things like hot sideration. This is uh, the knockout at Brasserie DuPont. What they are doing here is running out of their brew kettle, um, which is about 12 feet 
above uh, their mash tun, which is what they're running into here, is this pipe coming down and hitting this diverter plate, splashing into their um, mash tun, and uh, filtering as it's kind of a crude first-stage filter to filter out hot particles. They don't have a whirlpool tank, so they're just coming right out of their um, brew kettle, and this is their first phase of filtration. And then they actually centrifuge the wort hot and then go into a heat exchanger and into the, the fermentation tank. Um, they also use these unique square fermenters, which I had the picture of before. And uh, let's see how I can get back here. Oh, there it is. They use these uh, square fermenters. This is actually two on top of each other that you're seeing right here. And it could be said, or it's another interesting theory as to whether or not the fermenter shape is actually uh, important to getting a quick attenuation with this yeast. Uh, you could say that maybe because if it's a square shape, there might be um, zones of, of uh, different temperatures where you get convection and churning going on that uh, may be important to, to get a quick fermentation on this yeast. And also the fact that you've got lower uh, osmotic pressure on the yeast as a result of it being a shallow tank. You know, they they seem to think it's important, whether it really is uh, or not. I don't know. Uh, so review. Farmhouse ales have evolved according to modern tastes and technology, yet they do retain a certain rusticity to them. And again, the, the French and Belgian approach is that they're looking to be individuals. They're not looking to, um, you know, fall into a neat, tidy style definition. In fact, they want to fall outside of a style definition just a little bit, just to say they're different, theirs is unique. And then when it comes to brewing these styles, particularly the saisons, creativity and imagination are, you could say, the, the fifth ingredient. So that's it. Any questions? Yes, sir. You know the output of saison I believe it's in the 3,000, 3 to 5,000 barrel range. Uh, I, I think, I, I don't know if I have it in the book, but... You know, these details escape me now. It's been a couple of months since I've uh, since I've thought of it. Um, yes, you use the strain yourself, the Dupont strain. I have used the Dupont strain, yes. <coughs> and uh, as I've said, it continues to be very frustrating. I've found that uh, it, you know, you get uh, primary fermentation. Let's start at 14 degrees Plato, for example. By 11, 10 degrees Plato, it just suddenly hits a wall, as if. You know, suddenly you cool it down to 35, where in fact it's up at 80 degrees or so, um, and then just chugs along very, very slowly. I've tried um, aggressive aeration. I've tried doubling, where I'm brewing one half of the batch one day, and then the next day come in with the second half. Uh, very high aeration and seem to make a difference. What has made a difference with me is adding uh, glucoamylase enzyme, just as a, an act of desperation. I added that to the fermenter. And the yeast went crazy. Then another time it didn't work. So, you know, it's, it's a mystery, but then again, that's what kind of makes brewing appealing is that you can't, you never quite figure it all out. Yes? Uh, well, Dave Logson's in the back of the room. I think he's a guy who supplies yeast cultures uh, from time to time. Some of these commercially available, the gentleman is asking if... Uh, uh, yes, they are. As a matter of fact, uh, we've worked with a number of different Saison uh, types of yeast, and we're currently experimenting with um, blending 
trades together to try to improve that permutation profile that Bill's talking about. We've got a number of uh, breweries that are using uh, mixed cultures right now. It's very satisfying results for us. So there's no very promising. Uh, this Saison style has gotten so popular here in the U.S. that there's an awful lot of breweries brewing style and home brewers as well. So there's lots of opportunities to uh, experiment and uh, there's a couple of different strains like uh, what uh, Philip mentioned earlier. Uh, instead of being yeast expressed flavors, using spices and some of the other Belgian strains is also a very common practice among both professional and homebrew. White labs have come out with a couple of new Belgian strains. And uh, culturing your own yeast is still an option as well, and, and it's not as difficult as you might think. If you get a fresh example, the yeast can start up right away in the bottle and then just grow it from there. And yes? You mentioned warm uh, bottle conditioning. What temperature range do you mean by warm? Um, Same as fermentation? No, not necessarily. Um, if, if Again, the DuPont model is that they primary ferment in the high 80s, low 90s, to get to get the yeast, to get the fermentation, the primary fermentation done. And then they transfer to bottles, and they, they condition for a long period of time at a lower temperature, in the range of 72, 74 Fahrenheit for six to eight weeks. That's their approach. And they, they also do something unusual, and they condition the bottles on their sides. Have you ever seen a bottle of DuPont with a stripe of sediment that doesn't wash off? On the side of the bottle, that's that's the indicator. It's done on its side, and and they seem to think that's very important for um, the flavor development. And logically, it makes sense in that you've got a greater surface area for contact between the yeast and the beer, and contact with the cork as well. So you get some of that flavor, possibly. Yes, sir. Going back to the beer de garde, you mentioned that it typically has a musky cellar type aroma flavor, and you mentioned the cork is helping develop that. Uh, is there any other any other suggestions as to how to develop that flavor? I, I do think that the French malts sometimes have that that uh, contribute a little bit of that musty character. Um, the water in that area of France is hard with uh, temporary hardness with calcium carbonate, and I think if you don't neutralize the water, if the French brewers don't neutralize the water, which I, I know some of them do and some don't, uh, you tend to extract more of the the husk tannin and flavor from the husk and and I think sometimes not only do you get more of that classic husky character but you may get a little bit of what appears to be a musty kind of cellar like character from the grains as well any other questions yes you elaborated on uh, yeast grains and yeast grains how about grain bill any, any considerations in the combination of grains in the composition of the, uh, the beer style you have to buy the book. This is all that time. Go, Bill, go. All right. Yes. Uh, on your beer de Mars, you talk about the cooler temperatures that they were fermented at. So in the farmhouse type beer de Mars, were they fermented primarily in the months uh, of, of November, December, January, February? We can assume they were down in the, into the 40s? Um, again, the question is about beer de Mars and the lower fermentation temperature. I have to say that what I was told is you know, legend at best, uh, but I was told by a couple of brewers that these 
brews were made in the, in the middle of winter when the cellars were cooler. How much cooler, it's hard to say, but uh, cool enough or warm enough where, yeah. you know, assuming that the ale strains, whatever kind of new strain they were using at the time, could still work. Um, you know, whether it got down into low, you know, low 50s or high 40s as a typical lager beer production, I, I don't really know. And, you know, again, in, in the modern approach, there seems to be a little bit more lager-like characteristic to the beer de Mars than, say, the, the standard beer de Gard. And it seems to, you know, follow with that legend. But as far as hard facts on that, they don't exist as far as I've been told. Yes? No, in their case, the question is, with DuPont, do they use the different yeast strain to bottle condition their, their brew? And uh, they emphatic, emphatic, emphatically thank you, um, claim they use the same yeast. But they also claim that it's a multi, that it has four distinct strains in it, whereas others argue it's a single strain. Um, I don't know. I have more of a tendency to think it's a single strain, actually, myself. Um, but, you know, if you, there are some commercial brewers... I know in the U.S. who have, uh, again, this whole experience of having a stuck fermentation or a very, very slow fermentation toward the end using a DuPont yeast, you know, out of either frustration or necessity, remove that yeast and then finish it with a, you know, faster attenuating ale or strain, ale or lager strain. But I'm not aware of any Belgian brewery commercially producing a Saison with two distinct, distinct yeast strains. So there you have it, a great lecture given by Phil Markowski of the Southampton Public House and author of Farmhouse Ales. That was given at the National Homebrew Competition in Baltimore this year. The Brewing Network was there to record it and bring it back to you. This has been a presentation of the Brewing Network. Thank you very much, Phil Markowski, for allowing us to use your knowledge and spread it around to the world. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you next week.